fasten your seatbelt. I'm taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car already is. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I am the monster the breathing men would kill. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you, I clean you, I dress you, and what thanks do I get? I am so, so sorry. Oh, you're fucked. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Dinner is served. Save yourself from hell. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week. 30 years in the making. <laughs> And that's the laugh I use when I'm laughing at my kids' jokes. So I'm really looking forward to all the therapy they're going to be on Sunday. <laughs> this is the 30-something movie that podcast. That was a little terrifying. What, my intro or the laugh? Yes. Oh, okay. I could, I could tone it down just a little bit. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't help at all. No. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll stop blinking. We'll do that. Okay. All right. Well, this episode, it is episode number 375, Silence. Well, let me do the Jim Carrey. Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> we are joined by the fine, upstanding gentlemen from the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, D and Jason. Guys, thank you so much for joining us hey, tonight. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much for having us, guys. We have been, we've been friends for a long time now. This is, uh, yeah. this is fun to get together and do this every so often. Thanks for having us. We, we keep planning, like, whenever you guys have a chance to come up here to Chicago, like, we keep planning of, like, I know Pat and I have talked a couple times, so like, all right, well, if Dee and Jason come up here, we got to go do this, we got to go do this. Well, so <laughs> Let's do it, man. So Let's make it happen. At some I point. I just want to be on a float on a parade singing uh, Don Shane. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Twist and shout. Yeah. We do that all the time up here. I bet, yeah. <laughs> that that can be arranged. Lean my head against the glass and say, I think I can see my dad from up here. <laughs> Uh, that, awesome. Yes, that can this be a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it is so great seeing you guys again. This is actually going to be a uh, it's going to be a mega episode for us because um, I know you guys we're we're doing Silence of the Lambs and you guys had kind of plans to do Silence of the Lambs and compare it with uh, Psycho and with M. So Psycho from 1961 and M from 1931. So this what are we the the 30 60 90 podcast? That works. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All yeah. right, so we're. 90. We're the 30, 30, 60, 90 something podcast. And um, yeah, so a lot of great movies to talk about tonight. So uh, we'll, we'll just go ahead and jump on in here. Spoiler alert, we spoil freely. So this is your only warning. Uh, the 30 something movie podcast is part of the Scene Stealers podcast network. Um, they are an international convention agent who's got a top class roster of movie and TV stars ready to be booked for your Comic Con or event. So for more info, go to www.scenestealersglobal.com. And then you can go check out our website, too. It's 30podcast.com, where you can leave us a rating. You can leave a voicemail. Uh, you could become a co-executive producer via Patreon. Lots of great stuff on there. Uh, exclusive episodes that come out every month for those that are supporting us on there. So um, those are some great ways that you can get in touch with us and be a part of the show. So, all right. 
Uh, before we jump into this month in 91, Jeff, I think before we started recording, you said you had something real quick for news. Yeah, so uh, it was announced, I think, just earlier today that um, the follow-up series to The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett, is going to start airing on December the 29th of this year. Ooh. I, I believe it's going to be a one-episode-a-week thing, just like they did with The Mandalorian. That seems to be their uh, their style. They, they don't want to yeah. drop an entire season all at once like uh, Netflix does. So they'll be doing one episode a week starting on December the 29th of this year. I like, no, I like, I like, the, I like the one a week format. Like I, when, when the Marvel shows were doing that, because it was just, I, a lot of the, to be honest, a lot of the Netflix shows when they would drop the entire season all at once, like stranger things. I love stranger <laughs> things, but I, if you were to ask me now, like what happened in season one versus season two versus season, I, they all blend together for me. Cause I, I I just finished my rewatch, so I could answer yeah. that for you. Okay, I, all right. <laughs> it was a good. It was a good time. Yeah. My, in in the mornings before uh, before I leave for school, uh, before my family's awake, I have my coffee, my breakfast, and I put on a little Stranger Things. It's awesome. Yeah, but I've I've often subscribed to the uh, Billy Joel philosophy, and uh, I think it was his live at Long Island concert. He was saying, uh, you know, we got some, uh, you know, we play some of the the new stuff, but people are like, that's cool. But what about the old stuff? You know what I mean? And then he says something like, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna play some oldies but goodies here, and we're gonna space this out for maximum effect. So I have often subscribed to the philosophy that you need to space things out for maximum effect most times. I think it I think it creates more of a buzz too, where people get to talk about the episode in between, and you're anticipating it coming on. You can't wait till the next episode airs. I think the binging, anything that's kind of against the binging is kind of nice because while I've done it, I did it especially with, like, Walking Dead. Um, I remember binging, I think, three seasons. I was behind, and I did, like, three seasons probably in a, in a week. Um, it was, like, into three, four, five in the morning. So because um, I, I think we were going out of town, I wanted to get done and caught up before we left for, for whatever. So the temptation to binge is there, and I think – Forcing you to have to wait a week is a good thing and a healthier thing. So that way, actually, children get fed, bills get paid, you know, and you get everything else done. You're not just stuck in a room just watching the next episode, next episode. So, yeah. All right. So That's a little stopping cue is good. So. Yeah. Oh, all right. Very cool. So, Book of Boba Fett coming out probably a little bit earlier than expected. So, coming out at the end of this year. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, we're going to jump in the DeLorean and we are going to head back to this month in 1991. So October of 91. What was going on in October of 91? Well, we'll tell you what was going on. October 5th of 91, the first official version of the Linux kernel, version 0.02, is released. Bo might be the only person that appreciates that, but it's there for him. Uh, October 17th, (laughs) the Blue Man Group's first performance in New York City. Mm, Uh, Wow. Yeah. Um, when you guys come to Chicago, we'll go see the Blue Man Group. There you go. Sounds great. Let's yeah. do it. I've I've only ever seen them once. I only went one time, so it's been a while. I would love to go see them again. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, let's we'll, we'll bring it down here for a second. Deaths in 1991, October of 91, mm-hmm. October 11th. Uh, Red Fox, the American comedian from Sanford and Son, dies of a heart attack oh. at age 68. Finally met her. Met Elizabeth. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. I'm coming, Elizabeth. This is the big one. <laughs> that would be the greatest if you got to say that before it actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then people are thinking he's joking. <laughs> and after about an hour of him laying on the floor, they're like, wait a second, maybe we should check on it. <laughs> so, so, so Dennis, Dennis, you've given me an idea. I'm going to do that right before I die. And then everybody's, my, my family's going to be like, who's Elizabeth? <laughs> It was a sled. Yes. Thank you. Um, October 17th, Tennessee Ernie Ford, American country music singer, singer and actor, dies of liver disease at age 72. That's sad. That is sad. I mean, it's been a while since he died, but it's still sad. Um, and then October 24th, Gene Roddenberry, the American creator of Star Trek, dies of cardiac arrest at age 70. What did he die of? Uh, heart attack. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the top sports things I found here was on October 5th, Fresno State ties the NCAA football record with 49 points in a quarter, the second quarter, as they route New Mexico 94 to 17. Oh. That's wow. That's basketball scores, friends. Seven touchdowns wow. in one quarter, man. You're yeah. doing something right. Yeah. Wow. Or someone is doing something very wrong. <laughs> very, very wrong. Probably a combination there. Oddly enough, now the New Mexico coach from back then is somehow uh, consulting for the Bears. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm thank, just saying. Thank you. Uh, top books in October of 91 were The Sum of All Fears by Tom Clancy and Scarlet by Alexander Ripley. Top movies were The Fisher King, Other People's Money, and House Party 2. And then top songs were Good Vibrations by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch and Emotions by Mariah Carey. All right. Our uh, movie info for this one is it's Silence can of the Lambs. I, can, oh, yeah. I, can I jump in real quick just to say 1991 was also was also the year that Miles Davis passed on. So um, it was. Did I think wasn't that like in uh, was that like last month or was it was it like August or what, September? Oh, shoot. Did I get the wrong month? I no, thought I, I had the right month. Okay. I, I thought that was, I thought maybe we said that last month. Okay. Well, edit that out. I'm sorry. Oh, I thought I, I, I looked it up quick. I might've gotten the wrong month. <laughs> you know what? Well, this is alive and well right now. Hey, there's, yeah. hey, whatever time period this is. Hey, it's, you know what? Let's somebody, Google that for you. somebody didn't find out until October 91 that Miles Davis had died. So <laughs> that's it. It's there like, it is. it's like September, he died all over September again. 28, 1991. Okay. Well, you were only like, Two days off, so you're fine. All right. If pee in your pants is cool. Um, so <laughs> the info for this one, Silence of the Lambs, it came out on the 30th of January, 1991. I don't know why I threw that reference out there at that point in time. It was didn't fit with anything. Uh, it was rated R. It was has a runtime of one hour and 58 minutes, directed by Jonathan Demme, who died in 2017. He directed Married to the Mob and Philadelphia. Producers were Ron Bosman, Edward Saxon, and Kenneth Utt. Kenneth Utt died in 1994. Bosman uh -oh. produced The Stepford Wives. Saxon produced Adaptation. And Utt produced The French Connection. Writers for this one. Thomas Harris wrote the novel that all these Hannibal movies are based off of, the Hannibal movies and TV shows. Uh, Ted Talley wrote the screenplay. Talley was also known for All the Pretty Horses and Red Dragon. 
which was the uh, Silence of the Lambs prequel. Cinematography is done by Tak Fujimoto, who also did cinematography and camera work for The Sixth Sense and Star Wars, the original 1977 Star Wars. Editor was Craig McKay, who did editing for Philadelphia and Reds. And music was done by Howard Shore, who also did the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Big and Seven. Um, when I was looking back at Howard Shore's uh, credits on IMDb, <laughs> I'm looking at it, I'm going, the same guy that did the music for Big also did the music for Seven. Those are very <laughs> different movies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Hey, you mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, I, I hate to interrupt, but yeah, producer Ed Saxon. Yeah. For Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. That the uh, the head in the jar, you know, Benjamin Raspail, mm -hmm. that is Ed Saxon's head. Producer Ed Saxon. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, they they awesome. made a uh, actual. Were they unhappy with him? Yeah. Oh, not his real head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fake head. It's his fake head. Nice. It's his fake head. It would have been better to have his real head, but it's his fake one. Nice. Um. All right, so let's see. We've got uh, budget for this one was nineteen million. Box office was two hundred seventy-two point seven million. So it made a bit of coin. Uh, Flick Metrics gives this one an eighty-eight percent, and Cinema Score gives it an A minus. So uh, clearly, a lot of cannibals came to see this movie, and they enjoyed what they were watching. <laughs> I don't want, vegan cannibals. I I don't really want to know what they were putting on their popcorn, but it's you go to the movie as a cannibal, finger foods. <laughs> Starring. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. That's the correct um, response. Don't encourage him. <laughs> oh, please encourage me. Uh, starring Jodie Foster, who played Clarice. Hello, Clarice. Um, which actually misquoted in the movie. It's one of those other misquotes. It's it's supposed to be. I think this is "Good evening, Clarice." I think is the actual line. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So we want to get together all the misquoted people. So you're going to have like Darth Vader and uh, Hannibal Lecter and like all the people that always get misquoted. We'll just throw them together in one scene and they'll all be happy. Um, Booger, yeah. There you go. So uh, Glitty, good evening, Clarice. Clarice Starling, she was in Contact and Taxi Driver. Casey Lemons played Ardelia Mapp. She was in Candyman and Vampire's Kiss. Scott Glenn played Jack Crawford. He was in Hunt for Red October and Backdraft. Anthony Heald played Dr. Frederick Chilton. He was in Deep Rising and Red Dragon. Stuart Rudin played Miggs. Uh, he was in Leon the Professional and Little Nicky. Anthony Hopkins played Dr. Hannibal Lecter. He was in Dracula and Meet Joe Black. Brooke Smith played Catherine Martin. She was in Bad Company and Fair Game. And Ted Levine played James Gum. He was in Heat and Shutter Island. I can't watch Monk without thinking of Buffalo Bill. Oh, it's yeah. very weird because Ted <laughs> Levine is a supporting character on Monk. Yeah. And just it, like, it's weird. It's weird to see him not as Buffalo Bill. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Especially in a comedy. All right. Yeah. Clarice Starling is a top student at the FBI's training academy. Jack Crawford wants Clarice to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may have insight into a case that Starling, uh, as an attractive young woman, may just be the bait to draw him out. Here is the trailer, and we'll be back in just a moment. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps him alive for three days. 
Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? I got to tell you guys, um, my brother is, he listens to some of my episodes, but not all of them. Um, but the last time that I saw him, he said, I think my favorite episode that you guys did was the Star Wars special episode. And I was like, <laughs> great. That's great. That was one of our favorite ones to do. So I think it's just great to be together with you guys again. Yeah, it's so great seeing you guys. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. Okay, so when we did that podcast, we I did trivia. I thought it'd be fun. He thought that was one of the best parts when you guys were, were all trying to figure out what the first lines of the first Star Wars were. Okay, so I'm I'm going to give you guys, this will be a little bit different than we did last time. I'm going to give you a little bit of trivia, see, see who can jump in, who can give me the answers here. All right, what is a horror movie, a horror movie that was originally titled The Babysitter Murders? Who knows? well-known horror movie originally titled the babysitter murders i got an answer jason gonna get hand up. You got anybody else anybody want to venture a guess yeah what you know. got dennis I, I don't know i would think nightmare on elm street but close close nope not nightmare on elm street who got who else who's got one no nobody uh john john's john's got a he's got a, a hesitant hand john i'm gonna say halloween Yep, that that's, that's the answer. That the was the second title yep. for the movie Halloween was supposed to be The Babysitter Murders. All right, add-on question. Whose mask was involved? Easy. Yeah, it's too easy. Shout it out if you know it. Shatner. Perfect. The Shatman. William Shatner. William Shatner's face turned inside out and spray-painted and all kinds of weird stuff. All right, now final on this particular brand of questions. How does that movie relate to one of the three movies that we're talking about tonight? How does it relate? Ooh, I can hear the Jeopardy theme coming on here. Da, na, na, na. Da, na, na. As, the, as the least qualified person to answer this, does it relate that like they put someone's face on in that movie and in, well, I, I want to be careful. We've already said spoiler and you're shaking yeah. your head. So I'm not going down the right way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's it, just remember that a lot of these movies are about guys who had mommy issues. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How does it relate? All right, Jason's got his hand up. What do you got, Jason? Well, I think that Michael Myers killed his parents. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But what does that have to do with any of the movies we're watching? We're well, talking about that. Well, psycho. Norman Bates killed his mother. Who else did he kill? His mother's lover. And who else did he kill? The most important scene in the whole freaking movie. Who did he kill? A, a traveler Lee. who came to the hotel. Who was played by? Janet Lee. Uh, oh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Jan Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis. There you go. Oh. Janet Lee Janet was Lee. the mother of yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, who was in her debut in Halloween as the babysitter that didn't get killed. Wow. Yeah. I, I was well, not ready for that. Good one, good one. I don't think we have. I don't think we have any level eleven horror movie fans here. <laughs> like, I'm definitely not, but I'm just glad that he 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 killed Jamie Lee Curtis' mom. You know, after Jamie Lee Curtis was born, because otherwise we wouldn't have True Lies. So I'm just saying, that's that's just good news to me. Love True Lies. Yep. And Trading Places. Yep. Mm -hmm. There it is. And and oh, yeah. and here's another connection. Jamie, no, 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 no. I thought, uh, never mind. I'm not going to say that. Edit that out. Edit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will tell you guys that Janet Lee was also with Jamie Lee Curtis in H2O, mm -hmm. the Halloween, like, uh, much later on sequel. Yep. Okay. They both have killer bods, too. Killer bods. They do both have killer <laughs> bods. Killer bods. I think the tape was worn out. On, uh, on <laughs> okay, so let me ask you guys a question. Why? Okay, who who likes scary movies among you? I got Jason raising his hand. I got John raising his hand. I got a, a so-so away from Jeff. Pat, you out on the... You out on the Scary movies? I don't do scary movies, but uh, I really dug these three movies. So, okay, I like psychological movies. And Dennis still has his hand up high. Okay, so smart, smart scary movies, yes, yeah, smart scary movies, not slasher, killer, psycho, crazy stuff. Now I'm not saying that's psycho. I'm talking about ones that are just mindless. Yeah, like not, I, not I, I like a good, yeah. good psychological thriller. That's where I, that's where I'm at. But like, you know, blood and guts and all that, like that doesn't do anything for me. Out on the slasher movies. Yeah. So I, I wondered about this because I really, I don't have much of a desire to be scared. I do like the thinking aspect of these movies. I don't really care to just be scared. I don't enjoy it, but I think there's a lot of people who do. There's like this safety of you're in a movie theater and, you know, the, the danger that you're getting the rush of fight or flight chemicals from. You know, but it turns out a lot of people like to be scared. And Alfred Hitchcock has an inque incredible quote on this. An Shut up. I want to hear Alfred. I like him. He makes me laugh. <laughs> um, no, Alfred Hitchcock has an incredible quote on this. He says, everybody likes to be scared. Even babies like to be scared. That's why the first thing you say to them is boo. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. So, right. That's a good quote. All right. So we're going to talk about know. scary movies tonight. I'm going to give you guys a quick history. So in 1896, 
George Malays was filming on a pair of street. He was, it was one of those hand crank kind of cameras and it got jammed on him and he finally got it working again. He started cranking it again and he had taken an image, a, you know, a film and the first part that changed into a completely different film on the second part. And what the result was, was this image that children who had been playing some, you know, changed into horses, men changed into women. Uh, and the most spooky part, a bus full of workers turned into a hearse. And this spooky little trick became Trick Films, which was the first of special effects films that we had, which of course immediately led into horror films. Malay's directing some of the most well-known, the first of which was House of the Devil. Then we have in 1910, the first version of Frankenstein comes out from the Edison Studios of Thomas Edison, and it's a total flop. It's a 16 minute thing that really doesn't relate to Frankenstein at all. But everybody, every reviewer says this type of movie is something that not for the general public. This is something that coroners and undertakers and grave, div grave diggers and morgue keepers would find enjoyable, but not the general public. And so nothing happens till, until about 1925 when we get Mr. Lon Chaney in this movie called the Phantom of the Opera. And he does more special effects of his own where he changes his face and you have one of the most dramatic scenes in silent films when she rips the mask off the Phantom of the Opera and he has that ghastly, toothy, sharp-faced grin. Looks like the girl on uh, Fright Night. <laughs> right? Amy. 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 And then nothing happens for about six years until we get in 1931, M, Dracula, Frankenstein, about the ninth installment of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but it was the best. And then we also get Dracula, the Spanish version. Yeah, that's right. You tell them about this one. Okay, so have you guys seen the Bela Lugosi Dracula movie, the classic, right? Many times, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So one of the cool things that I learned while studying that is Universal Studios wanted to have a English-speaking version and a Spanish-speaking version. Well, they didn't have the technology to just do subtitles, so they would actually film using the same set, same costume, same props, same everything, and they would flip-flop the day and night schedule. And so Bela Lugosi's crew would do their thing, and then they'd bring in the Spanish guys, but they watched what worked and what didn't during the day shift. And they thought, you know, we can make that better. Or that's a little bit weird. We can change that. And so a lot of people think that the Spanish version of the 1931 Dracula is the superior movie. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I actually found, uh, I found a copy of it online somewhere and I started to watch it at one point and then just got, wasn't able to finish it, got sidetracked, but I'm like, Okay, this is pretty cool. And I mean, I I like. I'm a fan of the old Universal monster movies and the the 31 Dracula and um but yeah, I started watching this. I was like, all right, this is this is this is giving the Bela Lugosi a run for his money. So the other uh, other movies that came out in 31 included three from this young director named Alfred Hitchcock. It was The Skin Game, Mary and Rich and Strange, which later got changed to East of Shanghai, they were all bad. They 
Alfred Hitchcock was not yet the Alfred Hitchcock yet, but the best of them was Mary, which of course was a thriller mystery, which is what he was known for. I've never, I haven't seen any of those. You guys seen any of those? I haven't seen any of those three. No, I'm not familiar with those three. I don't think that you need to bother. <laughs> um, so M was released in Germany in May of 1931. It didn't show up in the U.S. for another couple of years, March of 1933, which is about the time that Fritz Lang said, I got to get out of this country or they're going to kill me. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Keep on, keep on going. I think there's some controversy about, didn't he kind of tell a story about how he escaped from Germany? And there's some controversy about what, how much of it is true. Um, yeah. So the, so, okay. I'll tell the story now. Tell the story. man. Uh, so the story is he's directed this second, like basically second to part to a movie that he had done before that involves like the psycho criminal. And in the second part, he is putting slogans of the Nazi party in the mouth of the villainous psychopath. And so he's feeling pretty haughty at this point. And, you know, the yellow shirts at the time are saying, hey, we're going to we're going to take this film from you and you're not going to be able to show it. And he's like, you want to take it? You go ahead and try to take it. So they take it. And then he gets an invitation from Joseph yeah, Goebbels. Goebbels, yeah. Goebbels, yeah. yeah J- Joseph Goebbels, who's, you know, the minister of propaganda and Hitler's right-hand man. And by invitation, I mean order to appear. And so he goes into this, you know, creepy marble department that uh, that uh, Joseph Goebbels has his office in. He's getting pretty nervous. He walks in and Joseph Goebbels is immediately friendly and shaking both of his hands and immediately starts telling him how much he loved Metropolis, which is Fritz Lang's, you know, big movie from 1927 and how much Hitler loved that movie and how they've decided they want him to be their head guy for Nazi films. And he says, um, you know that like my mother, I, I converted to Catholicism, but she was Jewish, which, you know, makes me Jewish. And Goebbels says, oh, sir, we decide who is Aryan and who is not. And he's like, Wow. Okay. And so Goebbels starts to give him advice on his films and he keeps looking out of the window at this clock in the street, uh, thinking, okay, I've got a little bit of time before the banks close. If I can just get to the bank after I'm done with this meeting and get all of my money, I can get out of the country. But Goebbels keeps talking to him. He keeps looking at the clock. Goebbels is like, you know, there's this part in your new movie where the, the guy, the, Villain takes over the body of somebody else. The movie should just end right there. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're totally right. That is exactly great idea. Great idea. That is exactly how my movie should end. Keeps looking at the clock. Goebbels keeps talking. And eventually time runs out and the banks are closed. So he goes back home. He has like $5,000 in cash at home and decides he's going to leave everything else. He goes to his door and sees that his building is surrounded by the yellow shirts. He's like, okay, they're going to. They're going to keep me prisoner here. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do. He walks out the door and realizes they're just involved in some military exercise. They don't care about him at all. He sells some other 
jewelry that his wife had and makes his way out of Germany and into Paris. That's the story that he tells. There is some doubt about whether that's all completely accurate, but it's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. That's a, that's a great story. Wow. John, did you read something on that? Yeah. I had, I had looked up a couple of different things on him and, and that was, you know, the part of the, the story too, I think was he ended up on the train and, um, they were coming around and normally you'd have like a conductor or somebody come around and check your papers, your tickets, whatever. And I guess he's on the train. And according to his story, um, he's in one of the, the train cars. And I don't, I don't know if there's a couch or a bed in there. And, um, he hears them coming like door to door and he's like, Oh crap. They're going to like, they're going to come in here. They're going to find me. They're going to recognize me. And so then, um, he's like, all right, well, I got to do what I, you know, tell my actors to do. I got to just start faking something. And so he just starts snoring really loudly. I think he lays down. And he just starts snoring really loudly, and apparently that was enough to make the you know yellow shirts think, oh, somebody's in there sleeping. Let's go on to the next. So apparently he pulled a Star Wars, um, and and somehow it was like, oh, well, sorry, this door is locked. Don't feel like it on needs any more effort. Yeah. Let's on to the next one. This is not the Jew you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I heard a story. I wanted to elaborate this. So, well, here's what I heard is when Goebbels was questioning him in the room, at one point, he punched him in the face and he said, this is how we say goodbye in Germany. Uh, and there was no Austrian girl there. There was no that. Austrian girl to make out with him, so unfortunate. Well played, my man. Uh, nice. You, you tell I I bought that hook line and said you all the way so down. I, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and and of course Fritz yeah, Fritz Lang's response was, I like the Austrian uh, propaganda minister better. <laughs> Me too, yeah. Okay, so M came out in 1931 in Germany. Um, it was directed by and written by Fritz Lang. He also, along writing with him, was his then wife at the time, Thea von Harbon. Uh, she later uh, started having marital affairs with not him and then joined <laughs> the Nazi party. And that was enough for him to, to get a divorce. And so- Nazis uh, will do it. Yeah, Nazi. I mean, Nazis. Infidelity is one thing. Nazis is the bigger whole, whole other whole other thing, man. Yeah, I hate whole those guys. Things. As yeah. long as as long as they're not Illinois Nazis, Nazis those guys are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the original title for this movie was "Murderer Among Us," and again, this got him in trouble with the Nazis because they thought he was making a movie about Hitler. Like they literally jumped, they jumped the shark. They thought, oh my gosh, he's writing, he's written a movie about Hitler and he's calling it Murder Among Us. And he's like, no, it's not, it's not about Hitler. So they're like, oh, okay, I guess you can go ahead and make the movie now. Uh, yeah. Hey, by the way, yeah. M is the shortest movie title of all time, but it ties with two other movies. Anybody know the answer to the question? What is the name of the other movies? I'm going to go with Pi. As being one of the other ones? <laughs> that would be incorrect, sir. Oh. Nope. All right, D, what you got? Okay, there is a movie called Z. Yep. And there's a movie called R. You got it. But this is definitely the most famous one-letter titled movie. Well, Pi is uh, the movie Pi. That's just the symbol Pi. So that one would be in there, too. Yeah, but it's infinity long. 
That's like the opposite of short. I, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I, it was it was my understanding there would be no math during the podcast. <laughs> okay, so they 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 shortened the title down to M, and they took out a newspaper ad and said we need um, we need actors for a movie about a child murderer. That got them some hate mail. <laughs> you don't say. Yes, yes, it did. Um, is, is that like when the police put out a thing that say, hey, we've got a giveaway of a bunch of free TVs. Uh, if you could, And then they get like all the people who have broken their parole show up to get the free TVs. That, yeah, yeah. That's like the first instance of that. We need a bunch of people to play a child murderer. So if you have any experience, <laughs> please show up to. Yeah. Immediately arrest everyone. So in researching the movie, he spent eight days going to a mental institution for research, mental institution for the criminally insane. And there he met a, I can't say gentleman, he met an inmate named Peter Curtin. Do you know who Peter Curtin is? Jane Curtin's grandfather? Well played. Nicely done. Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis's great uncle? No. So Peter Curtin was known at the time as the vampire of Dusseldorf. He had literally just been arrested within the year before uh, Fritz Lang is going in there and talking to people. A lot of people claim that this movie is supposed to be based on him. We're going to talk later about Ed Gein and how many of these movies and other movies have been based on what Ed Gein did. Um, Peter Curtin makes Ed Gein look like Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Like he had seriously some sick and twisted stuff that I won't go into, but now it's as good a time as any, if you're listening with your teenage kids, we're normally family friendly, but these movies are really, really unpleasant subject matter and based on real stories that have even more unpleasant subject matter. So it may get a little graphic. We may want to do PG 13 extra. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. PG 14. I, I, I just, <laughs> yes. I wanted to, I wanted to say real quick, I made the mistake of going to the Peter Curtin Wikipedia page. Uh-huh. And, and now I'm feeling like in ghostbusters, I looked at the trap, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so without without going into a great deal of detail, because I don't like this nasty stuff, um, Peter Curtin was mistreated as a youth by his parents severely, made friends with a guy whose job it was to catch the wild animals, and then they had enjoyment with the animals and their murder. Um, that later led on led him to murder other women and ultimately children, and at some point was... Uh, excited by the blood and so drank some of the blood, which is how he got the name Vampire of Dusseldorf. When they were ultimately, when he was caught, it was because he had taken a potential victim to his house. She had convinced him to let them let her go. And he thought she would never find his house because he had beaten her so severely. Well, she could find it. He sees her hanging out outside of his house. He knows he's done for, he's murdered tons of people. So he goes to his wife and says, you need to tell him that you knew nothing, which she didn't. Um, and you need to turn me in for the reward, which she did. Um, so she got the reward for turning him in, even though he was really turning in himself Um, Obviously, he was in the mental institution for a time, but ultimately was convicted at trial. And back then, they were still using the guillotine. 
And so as he's being walked to his death, he asked the executioner, after my head is cut off, will my ears still be able to hear the blood spurting out of my neck? Because that would be the ultimate ecstasy. That's how bad this guy is. So M is not so bad. Yeah, really. M, you don't see any murders. You just get to imagine them as they occur. Jason, what do you got? Okay. Well, was this the first watch for you guys, for M? Yeah, for me. Yep. 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 Same here. Yep. All the way through, yes. I had seen some clips before, but all the way through, yeah. Same. Okay. I, I feel like I'm going to blow your mind with this thing. If you guys are where I think you are. Okay. So Peter Laurie is the guy who plays the murderer, right? He's the, he's the bad guy. He was main, mainly was known mainly for his comedic roles, but he was in a lot of Bugs Bunny cartoons. Do you guys know the guy? Like you recognize him from Bugs Bunny cartoons. He played like the mad scientist when they were, Chasing yeah. around Gossamer, the big orange uh, monster. Monsters are such interesting people. Uh, but he's one of those guys that ran around with Humphrey Bogart, and, and they always, he had droopy eyes. And I remember one in one particular Bugs Bunny, he said, he makes me laugh. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, he was also, I, I mainly knew him, and I think that's how I came across some clips one time looking. And um, I think it was like maybe to see if he was still alive. I don't know, whatever. But back in the day, I remember seeing through that. But uh, he was huge in all the Vincent Price, uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Okay. So he was in with a lot of lot of Vincent Price uh, movies as well. Like he worked with Vincent Price a lot. So I remember, I remember going up and watching my dad watch those films, and I always saw Peter Lorre in those. He's in The Raven, isn't he? Gosh, I, I think what? I think the Raven. Yeah, he's I, yes, he was. He was in the, the, one, the, the one, Those are all the those. One where the where the cats where where he where he buries somebody behind the wall and there's no. I think he's that one. He doesn't kill his wife and put her behind. Um, like Telltale like Heart. Cementer. Telltale Heart. Yeah. Yeah, no, Telltale Heart. That one. Yeah. No, you're thinking. No, no yeah, so Telltale I think Heart. He's that one. Telltale Hearts. Telltale, Telltale Hearts a different story than the one that you were just describing. Yeah, but, there's uh, one where it's like a cat gives wall. him away or something like that. I don't know what it was. He was in something like that. I remember because it's like funny because he's hearing the you know like like you said he had that balance of creepiness and weirdness and funny at the same time. Yeah, those Edgar Allan Poe movies were all done by Roger Corman. Uh, you yeah. know, those, he, he was a movie guy, and so um, he was in there with Vincent Price doing the Poe movies. He did several others. Vincent Price actually gave the eulogy at his funeral. Roger yeah. Corman has a pro, has a role in Silence of the Lambs. That's right, he does. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of Roger Corman mentions. I got one. I'm ready to. Are you ready to have your mind blown on this one, Jason? All right, let's go. Okay. He played the very first Bond villain, Lashif, in Casino Royale, the one that came out that was made for TV that had the American actor in it. He was the original Lashif, the original Who Bond. he? Who? Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre, what? Yeah. Wow. That's good. Did his eyes bleed blood? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he was good at poker, though. <laughs> no, it's Baccarat. Oh yeah, right. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
we originally came over, we came across this movie through an Ozzy Osbourne album that we went through called No More Tears. We did this uh, about a year ago or so. Yeah. Mr. Tinker Train was the, was the song and the video pulled clips from this movie and that's how we came across it. Right. So in the movie, he used real criminals. Right. Throwback to beat it. <laughs> um, and and not only were they real criminals, they were real wanted criminals. There were literally 24 of them arrested during the filming of the movie. Just round them all up at once. Yeah, say, got them all here. We're done filming. You can come get them now. Round up the usual suspects. Fritz Lang was convinced to make this film after reading the last scene of the script when a mother ominously warns, you have to watch your children. That's what he says this movie is about. And that's, I mean, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, but what the big point of the movie is, I think is a bigger question than just protect your kids. Um, he also, you know, I talked about Peter Curtin. He denied that it was just about Peter Curtin. He said there were lots of bad guys then. I'll throw some names out if you're one of those folks who are into the true crime serial killer stuff. Back then in Germany, you had Fritz Herrmann, who had uh, 24 victims, was known as the Butcher of Hanover. Um, you had Carl Grobman, who was a cannibal, ended up committing suicide before they could convict him at trial. Um, and you had Carl Dinky, who was known as the Hannibal of Zebice. He had killed and done other bad things to dozens. Wow. Okay. Uh, I think you're. I think you're also forgetting the Hamburglar of Hamburg. <laughs> <laughs> very, very uh, wanted criminal for a long time in the '70s, for sure. So we talked about how Fritz Lang had done silent movies. Had done M. He had had a lot of success with silent movies. This was his very first sound movie, and he had been against sound movies. Like when they started doing it, he was like, "I'm not doing a sound movie. This is. I don't like this." And then. When he did it, he did everything with sound that everybody then did after him. He did narration, which had never been, been done before. He had a soundtrack. He had a leap motive, which is where there's music connected to a particular character with that whistle of in the Hall of the Mountain King. Um, and then he had like off-camera sounds that let you know what was going on in the areas that you couldn't see on the screen. And then he would use silence just before the big scares when there'd be a loud boom. Nice. There's supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom. <laughs> Where's the earth shattering kaboom? <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out Peter Lorre couldn't whistle though. Right. So when you hear the whistle, when you hear the. I'm not going to whistle. Turns out much. you can't whistle either. I can't whistle either. I'm dry, man. It's, it's hard to talk this long. It's easy. You just um, put your lips that together actually, and blow. That's Fritz Lang. That's Fritz Lang whistling. Yep. It's real easy. You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs> okay. So, all right. You want, we want to move to Psycho, guys? Yeah. You guys got other things to talk about. We're going we're gonna to come back to casting and plot and all that other stuff. Um, on M in just a little bit, but do you guys want to talk about how Psycho came to be? Let's talk about Psycho. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. John, you can cut all this out of your episode if you want. I don't know, yeah, whatever right. you want to do. You're hurting my feelings. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's right okay. here, Jason. Come on, man. 
So November 16th, 1957, Frank Warden comes home after hunting all morning, goes to his mother's hardware store, walks in, and she's not there. And he doesn't know why she's not there. And then he sees that the cash register is open. And then he sees a blood stain on the floor. The cash register is gone. And it appears that a body has been drug out of the heart, out of her hardware store. And the only other thing that he sees is a receipt for a gallon of antifreeze. And he knows there was a local there yesterday who had told his mother, Bernice Warden, that he was going to come back that day and get a gallon of antifreeze. And so they immediately went to go talk to that guy. His name was? Ed Gein. Ed Gein. And they arrested him, or at least took him in for questioning, and they went to the house to see if they could discover any clues that would lead them to the discovery of what happened to poor Bernice Warden. When they went into the barn, they got the shock of their lives. They saw what they thought was a deer hanging from the rafters. As it turned out, it was the decapitated body uh, of Ms. Warden, uh, who had been gutted by Mr. Gein. And that was just the beginning. When they got into the house, they found skin lampshades, nipple belts, uh, Miss Miss Warden's severed head next to the stove, uh, along with her heart boiling in a pot. Uh, the mask of a young woman who had gone missing a couple years before, named Mary Hogan, um, and a suit made of human skin. Sound familiar? Yes. It's, yes, all that is, uh, we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, we're all, I I got to, it sounds gruesome, but it's really, I got big shoulders. It's hard to find clothing that fits. So sometimes you just got to make it yourself. Right, right. Well, he had, listen, I, I, I did some reading on this. Yeah. Unlike Buffalo Bill, he had like straps on the side that he could, you know, cinch it up because- you know, you know, you want an extra snug hourglass. Yeah, that's the way a woman. You want to look hot in your, you know, skin. As it turns out, Ed Gein had been kind of uh, mentally abused by his mother, but uh, was what we would describe as codependent upon her. I guess maybe that's a slight understatement. Anyway, when she passed away, he decided the way to bring her back was to make a woman costume, which he would don in the full moon and walk out in the middle of the night and dance around in his yard. Boy's best friend is his mama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So there was a guy or a writer named Robert Block who just happened to live 40 miles away from Ed Gein. And so he decided to drive out there and do a little research. And what resulted was a book called Psycho. Mm Mm-hmm. Anybody read the book? I'm not. No, I have not. I haven't. All right. So um, somebody who did read about the book was a guy who had been described as the Fritz Lang of England, a guy named Alfred Hitchcock, who had become basically the Steven Spielberg of the 1950s and was at the top of his game. And he hears about Psycho and asks 
his company, his studio company to buy the rights to it. They don't do it. They're not interested. And so he gets them himself, pays $9,500 to Robert Block for the rights to Psycho, what would go on to become his most famous movie. <clears throat> okay, so when he wanted the screenplay written, he uh, went to talk to a guy named James Cavanaugh, who was a writer for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, his TV show that was going on at the time. Uh, that guy brought back a story that bored him to tears, which I don't know how you make a story about a psycho killer who dresses like his mother boring, but somehow this guy managed to do it. So they tapped a guy named Joseph Stefano, who had only written one movie before this called The Black Orchid, um, and said, we want you to talk to Mr. Hitchcock. Hitchcock wasn't initially interested until Stefano told him that he was in psychoanalysis. And at that point, it became interesting. He's like, I think I can, I can do some psychoanalysis stuff with this character and the fact that he has his mother's attachment thing going on. And he wrote the perfect script. And as it turns out, his first draft, Joseph Stefano's first draft was the draft they used to shoot the movie. I think it's interesting that they use their TV crew. I mean, this, this was made at, a, I mean, the budget was 800,000, less than a million dollars. And uh, they used their TV crew. They used all the guys that they shot the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show. Did you guys ever watch that show? I The funniest yeah. We used to watch that show all the time. And my parents yeah. actually used to kind of joke about it because when I was a baby, I was – I. They used to call me Alfred Hitchcock because I like looked like a baby. All right, looked like a baby. I looked like Alfred Hitchcock when I was a baby. So sometimes they would, my dad would like do the da dum da 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 dum da dum, and he would turn me sideways and try to take pictures of me that way. So <laughs> basically, what I'm saying was I was a fat baby. <laughs> Your dad's a funny guy. Um, so yeah, the studio that Hitchcock was working for at the time was called Paramount. I've heard of them, right? Yep. The cat, the mountain the beginning of Raiders, Raiders of the Lost, Lost Ark, Ark right? Yep. Okay, so, but Paramount was like, this is repulsive. The, there's no way that we're going to allow you to make this movie. We're not going to, he's like, I'll tell you what, I will shoot it for less than a million dollars. You do not have to pay me the $250,000 that you normally pay me as a director fee. I'll just take a 60% stake in the movie. Good business decision? For him it was. Yeah, it was. Yep. Wow. The serial killer list continues and do you guys remember the 80s do you remember all of the serial killers that were doing stuff in the 80s it was it was crazy like they were all over the place okay so you you had ted bundy who i realized he did most of his killing in the 70s but he was obviously went through the whole trial all of that stuff in the 80s so you got ted bundy you've got gary heidnick You've got Ed Kemper, you've got Gary Ridgway, you've got Alfred Trevino, Trevino, um, and Ed Gein, of course, was not in the 80s, but he is on that list. These are all guys that Thomas Harris used as inspiration for Jamie Buffalo Bill Gum in his book, Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, they were... John Douglas, the character that Jack Crawford is based on, they were pursuing him at the moment when they were uh, filming and working on all that. So, yeah. So Ed Gein, obviously we've got the skin suit, right? 
the sewing, that's that's that relation with Ted Bundy that you remember the arm brace that he's got at the beginning when he's loading the couch. That was a trick that Ted Bundy would use. He'd use crutches or an arm brace to look helpless and use that to lure his victims in. Gary Heidnick is the guy who, this is interesting. I, I had to read on this guy a little bit. He developed his own like religion and his, within a few years, this religious sect that he had formed had half a million dollars. Like he had invested with Edward Jones and like was a wise and savvy investor who then later on gets a bunch of prostitutes and keeps them in a pit down in his basement. That's the, that's the way it relates to silence of the lambs. But he tried to plead insanity like the rest of these guys, but the Edward Jones guy or his, whoever his financial advisor was like, Nope, he absolutely knew right from wrong. He was a savvy investor. There's no question. This guy is not insane. And that's how he was one of the only three people who've been executed in Pennsylvania since they reinstituted that Ed Kemper, I don't need to go into, but there's a ton of true crime podcasts about that guy. You got the Green River Killer, who is Gary Ridgway, who, like you said, hadn't been caught yet, but he would dump his victims in the river and he would put things inside of them. And then Alfred Trevino uh, killed his boyfriend and then decapitated, decapitated him and then went on to murder several other folks. Nice. What about 1986's Manhunter? Are you guys familiar with that one? Seen that one? Thoughts on that one? Yes, I've seen Manhunter. Anybody else? I've not I have, seen it. I, I know it exists. I've just, I, I don't think I've ever been able to find it. Not that I've sought it out much, but I've never seen it. No. Well, in that one, I mean, that, so that was a flop at the, at the movies. Um, Brian Cox actually plays Hannibal Lecter. Uncle Argo. Yeah, it's Daphne's dad on Frasier to me, but yeah, or the you know the main bad guy in the Born Identity movies. Yeah, what did you think of him, Dennis? Do you remember that? It's from a long time ago, and I mean, I I remember being you know, um, it wasn't as good. I, I was I think I was expecting more because I think I saw Silence first, and then obviously then that one, and um, I, I think it was a bit of a letdown. It wasn't as good. Yeah. Underwhelming, I guess, is what I would think. It, you know, so I remember seeing it, some good spots, some good parts, but then overall, like it had a kind of a, from what I remember, a pretty creepy vibe. At that time, I was about like I'm trying to think when I saw that, late teens maybe. So yeah, so it it wasn't like it's not anything that impressed me though overall. But I think it had a, a decent creepy vibe to it at some at some points of the film. I saw it in the late nineties and I, I would, I liked silence of the lambs. Okay. So I was like, Oh, this is the prequel to that. I, and Michael Mann is the same guy who gave us Miami vice. And as, as soon as it started going, I was like, Oh, this is like silence of the lambs, Miami vice style. <laughs> That's right. exactly what it looked like. Crockett tubs come in, they get lecture. <laughs> I think Dennis Reno was in there too. The guy from yeah. um, like the deep, what was it? Uh, Get shorty. What was the TV show where he was in there? New York, uh, NY, or uh, he was in a cop show. Dennis Freena. He's a cal- he was in, actor. Yeah, he was in one of the yeah. Law and Orders for a bit. But he was, he's a, he was playing the cop or the gangster. Yeah, he was in like Hill Street. Yeah, Blue. he was in like the popular. It was a popular series. I'm, um, let's see if it shows up in here. NYPD Blue. Was that it? I don't know. If only we had a device that would yeah. tell us. <laughs> 
Well, we had all human knowledge at our fingertips. <laughs> so this is interesting to me. So Manhunter tries, you know, Michael Mann tries his hand at the Hannibal Lecter character. It flops at the movie theater. Dino De Laurentiis was actually the producer of it. Of course. Dino De Laurentiis, uh, famous for all kinds of awesomely bad movies from the 80s. Flash. Flash Gordon. Among Conan. Them. Conan. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian. And uh, and so he had the Hannibal Lecter character rights. And when Orion went to him, he's like, I can't do anything with, with this character. Here you go. Gave it over for free. The Hannibal Lecter character. Little known fact, they were actually planning to do a musical of Hannibal Lecter. And that was one of the songs. They were going to take it from Flash Gordon, but it was going to be Flesh. Uh. <laughs> okay. So back to our Roger Corman reference. Uh, Jonathan Demi was a guy who had gotten his start with Roger Corman. Um, I took a look at him. His first movie was a girl prison movie called Caged Heat. I made the sacrifice and watched yeah, that for you I did guys. You really? I yes. did indeed. Um, well, lots and lots of boobies. <laughs> lots and lots of boobies. Uh, beyond that, not a really great movie. But what? He, he he went on, he, he improved, he got better. He ended up making a movie called Melvin and Howard, uh, which Mary Steenburgen won Best Supporting Actress for her performance in. And then he did a movie that we've talked about. This movie's called Something Wild. Do you remember where we talked about this? Jeff Daniels, Dumb and Dumber. There you go. Also, that quotes Silence of the Lambs. Ate her. Oh, yeah. Barbara Beans and a nice Chianti. Yep, all right. So he did Something Wild, which is the movie that they talk about in Dumb and Dumber. Then he did Married to the Mob, and then he got tapped to do this movie. Well, the book had been out, and Jodie Foster was like, I I want to play this part. She petitioned to play this part, but when she found out that Jonathan Demme was going to be directing it. She was like, well, he's definitely going to be giving it to Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't even need to bother, um, but I'm just going to go and meet him and let him know I'm interested if, as a plan B. And that worked because Michelle Pfeiffer said, no, nah, no, I don't want to do that. Seems gross. Seems gross. And so she got to play the young Officer Starling. Okay. Uh, so something, I, another, a quick, Pfeiffer, another quick thing about uh, Something Wild, also starring Ray Liotta. Yeah. yeah. Who, if you see the uh, sequel to uh, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, isn't he getting his brain eaten in that movie? Eat his brains. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yep. yes. While, while he's alive still. Yes. Yeah. And, still a little bit out of time. And, and as long as we're making connections, there was a movie that came out called Hitchcock, who. That's right. Which starred Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins as, as Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. While he was directing the movie Psycho. Like, yeah, that's what the whole like movie's about. Scenes, yeah. yeah. So Michelle Pfeiffer, Jodie Foster gets it, but the other names associated with Cleary Starling were, were Meg Ryan, Nicole Kidman, and Halle Berry. Hmm. I asked you guys, I sent you a text. I know I, I you guys probably didn't have a lot of time, but what, what do you think in recasting-wise? Is Jodie Foster the perfect one? Do you have anybody else that would be... Yeah, let's, let's start with Jodie Foster. Who would you guys cast instead of Jodie Foster? Back so, then or now? Back then. Back then. Oh, yeah. back then. Okay. Early 90s. Mm. That's different. I did mine based on today. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Do now. We don't yeah. care. Do now. Let's say they're rebanking it now. Who are you going to cast now? Uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson. 
<laughs> Too hot. I think it's good, yeah. <laughs> Too hot. So, where's my, uh, hold on, here we go, here we go. Oh, hot. Want to touch the hiney? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Um, um, I think maybe Sigourney Weaver back then I would, would have been interested. Okay. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Pat, you got any thoughts on that? Uh, well, see, and I'm looking at Jodie Foster's age back then. Monica you know, doesn't count either. Yeah, I, I figured. I figured. <laughs> I, I I struggle with this question, and, you know, it's it's really interesting. You know, I'm – I'm kind of lost in thought with everything you guys are mentioning. Like, oh, that would be interesting seeing that person play this role. Mm, that would be, I don't know if I have anything to offer to the conversation with that. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's hard when I go back and watch movies when I was younger, I tend to not, I tend to see those actors and actresses like I did when I was that age. So when I rewatched this movie, um, Jodie Foster seems like someone older than myself, even though when I'm looking at the age that she was and she would feel she was a few years younger than uh, what I am right now. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with this one. It's, it's, it's a very interesting question. If it helps at all, she was born in 62. So she would have been yeah. 29 whenever the movie came out. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I was obviously well younger than that when the movie came out and I'm slightly older than that now. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to keep just saying I don't have anything, guys. But it's it's interesting because Jodie Foster really just seemed to bring something like just a very unique touch to this. And so it's kind of hard to imagine who else, either now or back then, that would fill that role. Halle Berry, that struck me as pretty interesting because wasn't didn't we just talk about on our show, John, didn't we just do a movie where Halle Berry – was like her first role. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Uh, uh, she was Sam, Sam Jackson's girlfriend in, yep. um, that one movie. Right. Yep. Um, I, I can't think, I'm sorry. Uh, the one where the, uh, Cuba getting it gets shot, right? No, 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 no. It was, um, it, now you're making me blank out on it. It's the, uh, <laughs> we can edit all this out. Not boys in the head. God bless it. Not Boys in the Hood. Um, no, uh, Jungle Fever. Jungle, Jungle Fever. Fever. Thank Jungle you. Fever. Yes. Yes. And and so like that really, I'm kind of stuck on that name because wow, she was, she seemed a lot younger then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. So I'm kind of I'm kind of getting all turned around by. She I'm was getting all turned around the same question. year as Jodie Foster. Yeah. So they were the same age. That's crazy. Yeah, I'll I'll have to do some more thinking. I don't I don't know. That's that's a really that's a really interesting question. Recasting this role as Jodie Foster because she really she really just seemed to nail this character in terms of having that kind of. I mean, you know, she was she was the real deal. I mean, she was not quite in over her head. She was she was equal to most all of the challenges presented to her in the movie, but then she was also very. Uh, uh, open is the wrong word, but vulnerable to uh, Hannibal Lecter. And I want to say that in, in, I don't want to jump the gun with trivia here, but I want to say that there was something that Anthony Hopkins did in a scene. I think it was going after her accent or something that Jodie Foster wasn't ready for. And that like set her back a peg when, you know, all of a sudden Anthony Hopkins was coming after her the same way that Hannibal. Yeah. So you've got to have to be, no, go ahead. 
I was just going to say it would have to be someone that was like both strong, but also vulnerable. And uh, so I don't know. I, I've got two names that I. Yeah. Take mine, Jeff. I'm that, that, that kind of jumped out at me. One was Gina Davis. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And the other was Demi Moore. Mm. Yeah. I feel like maybe not so much the physicality of like, you know, running through the, uh, doing the coursework, but just some, some of the psychological stuff and portraying that aspect of the character of Clarice. I feel like I think this- both of those could have brought a very interesting take to that character. John, you got anything? I the one I had in mind, um, I, I had one kind of playing around in my head, but it's because back in the late eighties, early nineties, I just wanted to see every movie she was in. Um, so one of my first thoughts was a Winona Ryder. Um, and, and Jennifer Connelly. Well, that yes, that and never mind. All right, I'm just gonna excuse myself for a minute and continue <laughs> on with the podcast. I'm, I'm gonna go watch Labyrinth. I'll be back in a little bit. Um, <laughs> But the other one I was thinking about, because Pat, to your point too, with the character of, uh, I always have to say it, Clarice, with the character of Clarice, um, it's got to be somebody who is almost, almost seems like physically, physically unassuming or physically, I don't know, weak is not the right word, but, um, but someone who can, you know, has maybe, you're going to underestimate her a little bit. You know, you might look at her and be like, all right, well, there's not much there to her. And she's, you know, she's she's probably a, a very quiet person, but she's got a strength to her that she will just walk right into this mental institution and walk right up to one of the, you know, worst killers uh, in the United States and start having a conversation with him. Um, so somebody that I thought could potentially do something like that, um, Uma Thurman, I thought might not be a bad choice for something like that. Yeah. But I mean, you've got, I mean, even her name, like she's, her last name is a bird. It's you. So you're like, and he kind of plays off of that a little bit when he refers to her as starling, you know, fly away. And, um, you know, so it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be something that there's the, when you first look at her, there's the innocence, there's the, almost the unassuming nature. Um, but then it's gotta be somebody that could walk right up and just start having a conversation with Hannibal the cannibal. So when Jonathan Demme was casting the FBI extras, whenever she's going through the FBI Academy at the very beginning of the movie, he deliberately cast guys who were tall. He was trying to find guys that were over six foot tall. And I don't really think of Jodie Foster as this teeny tiny lady, but that's just because she's been up with actors who are not particularly tall. But there's that scene where she gets on the elevator and like it's a bunch of guys and her and she looks like a head and a half shorter than everybody else and so i think that's right it's like you're setting the stage to say here's this little girl and then she goes and is tough with him and is and holds her own like she's been trying to hold her own her whole life so my answer to the question born the same year jennifer jason lee nice my one of my favorite things about that scene in the elevator is when is when she goes all right before we get started Does anybody want to get off? <laughs> That's a good one. I thought you were going to say she pushed all the buttons and said, ooh, like a Christmas tree. What about Robin Wright? Same year, same birth year. I looked at her. Same deal. You know, she's yeah. beautiful, but kind of in spite of her 
you know, talented, smart, can hold her own. Uh, I like it. The one I came up with, Jamie Lee Curtis. I didn't even think about her connection to Psycho, but she's beautiful, but she could be tough, you know, so. And she kind of fits that age range. She seems old now, but. Yeah, it seems like she's been older. She was major. My first, my first thought was Holly Hunter, but she's a little older. She's a little older, but I thought she'd have the good Southern accent and the right height. Okay, let's talk about Hannibal Lecter for a minute. You guys ready? We ready to? Yeah. Get everybody in that one? All right. Hannibal Lecter. He's ranked as the number one villain of all time by AFI. Over Darth Vader. Wow. Number one. I don't know. I'd agree with that. He's awesome. I mean, the character itself is awesome. Kind of hard to root against him at some points in the movie. I mean, I was kind of like, sort of like rooting for the monster in a monster movie or the sharks in Deep Blue Sea. It was like, dude, this guy's going to get out. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know. It's kind of like rooting for Godzilla, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So Anthony Hopkins was cast, of course. Won an Oscar, did a fantastic job. But I'm just going to throw these other names at you to see what you think about. These are the guys that were considered for Hannibal Lecter. Okay? Robert Duvall. Nope. Getting a head shake from John. Nope. Get a nod from Pat. Okay. Get a blank stare from Dennis and Jeff. <laughs> I don't think he's uh I don't think he's menacing in any way. He's too nice. He seems sweet. All right. John Hurt. I'll go with that one. No. No. John Hurt. But uh, John Hurt's the guy from Alien, right? That has the thing come out of his chest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. No, not okay. again. <laughs> This is you're you're going sorry because I was I'm closing in the house. <laughs> it's like doing something that just came through. So where are we at the the replacement for that character? Is that where we're at? Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. No. The, well, yeah, these yeah, are okay. these are the people that were up for the role. Yeah, we're going oh, through who was close. You're just going through. It's not our choice yet. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Okay. So I've got some these names blew my mind. Okay. So Robert Duvall, Jeremy Irons, I think would have been good. That's who I was thinking. Mm. Jeremy Irons popped into my mind. Scar. He's scary, right? I mean, he's menacing. Scar. Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman. Ooh, that one, no. How about Patrick Stewart? That'd be interesting. Hmm. That'd be that'd be kind of cool. Dustin Hoffman. I can't see that though. Dustin Hoffman's about five foot one himself. <laughs> the scariest thing he's ever done. Rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> Def- definitely there's definitely 13 bodies buried in the backyard definitely 13 <laughs> bodies uh so here you go lewis gossett jr john lithgow that's good and that's the good. one that, and the one that blew me away christopher lloyd <laughs> <laughs> great scott yeah no you can't make doc brown hannibal lecter that's not okay marty uh, this body is very heavy help me drag it <laughs> I'm- I mean, you know, it's interesting because, like, I I could see Christopher Lloyd yeah. and I could see Patrick Stewart, right? And it's funny because, like, uh, you know, I okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the Trekkie again. I know Christopher Lloyd obviously is Doc Brown, like he is Doc Brown, but he was also Commander Krug in Search for Spock. So I've seen him as that villain piece, or as that villain piece. I've seen him as a villain. So 
I, I think Zoom. Hello. Judge Oh, yeah, Jeff, that's exactly yeah, there right. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah. hello. Yeah. It, he would he would seem to be I don't I don't know if unhinged is the right word. The Anthony Hopkins portrayal of him is I I don't want to say more cultured, but I'm just going to say more cultured. Whereas I think Christopher Lloyd, at least based on the other characters that he's played, would be a little bit more like it's all on his sleeve, like psycho guy, right? Right. The, uh, what was the other one that, um, that, oh, and Patrick Stewart, you know, um, obviously Jean-Luc Picard, and then also in Dune, he played, I, I always forget the guy's name, but not Halleck, was it Gurney Halleck or whatever? He was, he was the, uh, in Dune, he was the prince's like right-hand man, but seeing him as a bad guy, he's, I know he's been a bad guy in at least one film, but I could see Patrick Stewart just, you know, pulling on all his capital A acting chops and really like, that would be cool to see him do this. Um, but, but I mean, Anthony Hopkins is, is so good. So, you know, John Lithgow was, was it? Yes. Off that list too. Yeah, John Lithgow would be weird. Because what, what was I'm trying to think of the movie that he, he was, was in? A few creepy was, movies already, but um, oh God, what I can't think of the movie. Something Heights. Footloose. <laughs> Footloose. He was in Raising Cain. He was Cliffhanger. Was it Pacific Heights? He he wasn't the main villain, but he was kind of a he was an uncomfortable character. I think it was, the movie was Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think Michael Keaton might have been a decent choice. He can be crazy. Yeah. I don't know if he's old enough, but I'm I'm a little surprised that they didn't uh throw this out the Willem Dafoe. That's all Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Because I feel like I mean you look at you look at some pictures. There's a question. <laughs> yeah. Um I I feel like you look at some pictures of Hannibal Lecter and like one of the things that one of the things that really gets me when I look at pictures of him is he looked like Anthony Hopkins looks like a reptile. And I know that that was one of the things that he specifically brought to that character was, you know, he, he I think he based it off of a friend of his who, who had this habit of not blinking. And then he also was like, well, reptiles don't blink. So I'm not going to blink in my scenes unless it's at a, a, a you know, a dramatic time. Um, I'm going to be very intentional, but when I blink, and so he's just got. Even if you look at still photos of him as Hannibal Lecter, he looks like a reptile. And then when he's got the mask on in those other scenes, you just you see his eyes, and they're just his eyes are just massive. And and I look at a picture of Willem Dafoe, and I'm like, okay, he could pull off the reptile look. I think he could pull off the he could pull off the I'm just a normal person. I'm I'm very educated. I'm I'm a well-rounded human being. Um, but if you let me out of this cage, I probably will eat your face. You know, yeah. I, I could believe that. Yeah. See, and I, and, you know, we're jumping, I'm jumping ahead, but it was like, Willem Dafoe was one of the ones that I had also to play Buffalo Bill. And I can't see how he could play either one of those roles. He could probably do both. Like, I mean, not obviously at the same time, but um, he could do one. He, I think he qualified for both of those roles. So Willem Dafoe's got that, like you said, that, that range of, if he gets really serious and kind of creepy. Now back to Lithgow, um, I think we were searching for when he, if anybody's seen, obviously Dexter, he played a, a full season on Dexter and was a really good serial killer in there. 
So right. yeah, definitely a creepy, also intelligent creepiness to him. So I think that would have been an interesting choice. Wasn't he sort of like a creepy lizardy kind of guy in Buckaroo Banzai? He was a loon on that, yeah. Okay, so my pick for Hannibal Lecter would probably be Jack Nicholson among them, but he was considered the one that you haven't mentioned that I thought would be a good one would be Jeff Colblum. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, He's do, creepy. Can do smart. the fly. Yeah, he can do smart. He can do smart and poised, even though he does that affectation that he does. He can pull it back and do something like the fly where he's smart and poised and awesome. He can talk about chaos theory. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, hello, Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I had, there were a couple other ones that I had from back, from back then. One of the other ones I thought of um, was John Malkovich. Yeah, I thought oh, he could yeah. be a good one. Go. Um, yeah. When I did the when I did some of the names for today, like if we were going to cast the movie for today, um, the one that I wrote down for Hannibal Lecter was Jackie Earl Haley. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah. Nailed it. Yes. Yeah. You gotta be. You gotta look a little off. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Demi. Jonathan Demi offered the part to Sean Connery. That was his first choice. Huh. Clarish. Christopher Walken, I think, could have done that pretty well, though. A censorship yeah. man tried to test me, so I <laughs> ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> and then the other one for today, I would have been Christoph Waltz. Mm. Oh, that, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. Nice. Okay, so Buffalo Bill. You got uh, alternatives for Buffalo Bill? Uh, I don't have any alternatives for Buffalo Bill. I know Ted Levine got the part. He's actually from Belvedere, Ohio. The house that James Gum gets captured in at the end of the movie was right next door to the house where his high school girlfriend lived, literally. Wow. So as far as I could find, he was <laughs> I've been here. I've been here before. I got the second base right there. <laughs> Mystery of the blah, blah, blah. Mystery of the bra class solved. solved that's right. Uh, I don't have anything uh, on who possibly was uh, replacing him, but um, what do you guys got for alternates for Buffalo Bill? Oh, Buffalo Bill. Michael Emerson was one guy from uh, Lost. Okay. And then, I, and this is weird. You wouldn't think this one, but I, I don't know why, but Dax Shepard, for some reason, popped out. I don't know why. <laughs> wow. Would have been a little funnier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see him in a serious role. It would have been interesting to see if you could pull that off. I don't think I could he see him do the tucking scene without laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be able to pull off the tuck scene. Yeah. Also, Jake Busey, I would say. There you go. That's that's, that's a good one. Nailed that one. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm, so, I, I might uh, just say the. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh no, I I cut across you. Go ahead. I'm sorry about that. I was gonna say uh, of the time at the time, Steve Buscemi. That's what. Oh I, yeah. I was gonna say the 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 Jokers from the the more recent Batman movies. Either um, it was a uh, it's Joaquin Phoenix, right? Yeah. Or, or um, 
Jared Leto would be too pretty. Who was, yeah, who was the, who was the one in the Chris Nolan? I can't think Heath, of his name. Heath Ledger. Um, Heath Ledger. Okay. I, I think, you know, Heath Ledger yeah. or Joaquin Phoenix, sorry, uh, I think would make a real interesting, you know, being able to uh, play that character. Joaquin Phoenix would do the tucking scene, 100%. Two other now, ones that were on my long list were uh, Crispin, look, Chris McGlover and Andy Circus. Yeah, nice. there you go. Those would both be yeah. good. Yeah, that's great. I had, uh, for, for names from today, Joaquin Phoenix was on mine because I'm picturing, like, the whole tucking and dance scene and you know, <laughs> Joker, like, dancing down the staircase and, the, yeah, that whole thing. Um, and then the other one I thought of that could be, like, somebody from today that could be kind of interesting was um, Tom Hiddleston. Mm-hmm. It's got kind of like that. I, when I picture Buffalo Bill, I, I f- picture kind of like a like a tall, kind of lanky guy. And I don't know, just when, when he plays Loki, I, I picture him as being kind of a tall, lanky guy. Um, and I think he's got enough acting chops that he could pull off. He could pull off the socially awkward, weird, you know, whatever he needs to do to be Buffalo Bill. He could do Lecter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. good. English, yeah. smart. Yeah. I've, I've got a couple names that kind of popped. Yeah, go ahead. Popped in my head. Um, back, so this would be back in early '90s. That it, there's something about these actors that could portray the just the really off the wall in an uncomfortable sort of way type of character, right? So, like Nick Cage. Yes. Crazy um, time. Yeah. Maybe Edward Norton. Hmm. Okay. Because um, yeah. when you think of uh, that, the Real movie Wonder. he was in with Richard Gere. Yeah. Uh, oh, Primal. Primal Fear. Primal Fear. Yeah. Like that sort of character. Which, um, which oddly enough, Edward Norton was the main character in Red Dragon, the prequel movie. That's right. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Detective, right? Will Graham. Yeah. 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 And then Gary Oldman was the other name that came to mind. Oh yeah, well Gary Oldman could play any part in any movie, That's anytime, true. anywhere. He actually plays Mason Berger, the guy who ate his face in was it Hannibal? He plays in a sequel to Silence of the Lambs. So yeah, Gary Oldman could have played Clarice and done it well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of speaking of Clarice, I I just thought of a couple names that Katie Holmes or Jennifer Lawrence. I think from today, well, Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes might be a little bit too old for today, yeah. but like maybe 10 years ago. Cause you're, I think, you know, if you're trying to get, some, well, no, Katie Holmes could pull it off. Don't buy the toughness from Katie though. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I definitely got to, Lawrence. Definitely and Lawrence and what I'm just going to say though, I mean, like, is that just the role she's taken? Like, you know, yeah. Michael, Michael Keaton was Mr. Mom before he was in 89 Batman. You know, so I earlier when you when you said Jennifer Connelly, I got distracted. Um, but the more I thought about it, actually, <laughs> actually, I, I think of her in um, uh, we had been watching this show Snowpiercer and like her character in that. If she was and, and she actually I mean, she doesn't look very old, but if she was just a, maybe a little bit younger, but playing that character. I don't know if you guys have seen that TV show, but she's got, you know, she she has a little bit of a physical stature that's unassuming kind of a deal but she's also strong and confident and she can walk into a room and tell people what to do and um so actually a, a jennifer Connolly today 
wouldn't even be a bad choice for a Clarice. Mm-hmm. And, and Katie, Katie Holmes played Rachel Dawes on Batman Begins, and she was tough and in charge in that one. I think she could have pulled it off for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where I circled back to Robin Wright. Yeah. I think Robin Wright could have pulled that off too. Yeah. Especially when you, once you find out what she's really capable, like her character in house of cards yeah, was like frightening, frighteningly strong, frighteningly tough. Um, so I think, you know, knowing that she has that within her 30 years ago in the nineties, I think she could have been a great Clarice. Yeah. Or how about uh, uh, the gal that played Zoe Bartlett and then was also in the Scarlet letter and or no, Handmaid's Tale. Or wait a minute, I don't yeah. know who played Liz- Zoe Bartlett on West Wing. You're talking about Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. Yeah. How about Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> <laughs> and we've come full circle. I would, go, I would go. Maybe another one I would throw in would be another of my favorites that I always just love was uh, Sandra Bullock. Yeah, she can play about anything. Yeah. Okay, just some names for uh, Jack Crawford. Um, Scott Glenn actually played the part in the movie. They talked, they thought about Michael Keaton, Mickey Rourke and Kenneth Branagh. Um, I thought those were pretty good names. And Gene Hackman, I don't know if you guys know this or not. He, he bought the rights to silence of the lambs. This was supposed to be his directorial debut. Huh. And then he, I don't know what he was looking at, but after he bought it, he thought, no, this is too gross, too graphic. And he bowed out, but I also heard him as directing and playing Crawford. Mm. I could see Gene Hackman playing Crawford. So yeah. And and uh, Jack Crawford's character is based on the real life John Douglas. I've read his book called Manhunter. Fascinating, but it'll give you nightmares. So <laughs> I would have said Kevin Spacey maybe too for that role too. Could have been pretty interesting. Yep. And that now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne actually plays him in the TV series. Did you guys anybody seen the TV series? No, I haven't. I'd like to. I'd like to catch up on that. What, they, what series? Do you? It's called Hannibal. <laughs> oh, when you watch talk, see it. They had yeah. a yeah. They had a TV series that was called Hannibal. Wasn't it just a few years ago? Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then they've got one coming out this year, or it has been out this year, called Clarice. Oh, I didn't catch that at all. Yeah, there's a new I, one. I, so I, well, that's what I thought you were talking about. I started watching Clarice. I only got like two or three episodes in, and it was just, it was not landing well. Okay. So I was like, I can't keep up with this. They're they're trying to force too much of 90s sensibilities to be able to say this takes place in the nineties. Okay. And it just, it was, it wasn't working right in my mind. So I, I abandoned that show. Okay. We're done with casting for silence of the lamps. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Flip back to where are we going D. Okay. Trivia question. Name the first, Slasher movie, the first movie with a toilet, the first movie with a toilet flush, um, and first movie with a girl in just her bra and slip. Go ahead, shout it out. That'd be Psycho. Psycho. Psycho is the correct answer. Very good. All right, now real quick, 
What was the boyfriend's name in Psycho? Sam. Sam. Yeah. Sam what? The oh the hardware store guy. Sam. Sam. Why is Camchi? Oh, <laughs> Sam Loomis. Sam Loomis is the correct correct answer. Where else is there a character with the name Sam Loomis? Halloween. I did not call your name, Mr. Colvin. <laughs> Please stop shouting the answers out. Sorry. The answer is correct. It is Halloween. The doctor in Halloween oh. is named Sam Loomis as a throwback to Psycho. So another relation, if you will. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about first scene and best scene for each of the movies. All right, so first scene of M. You've got the kids dancing around in the circle, playing the game where like people are getting hacked up and <laughs> you got to get out of the circle if you get hacked up. Right. And then the mothers are like, stop, you know, stop playing that game. The other mother is, is like, hey, at least if we can hear them, we know we're th they're there. And then you see the wanted poster. You see murder on the wanted poster if you happen to speak German. It's not a real hard translation to make, but then a shadow comes over the word murder and it's the killer. Right. What do you guys think? What do you think of the first scene? I, of, of M, I thought that was great. Like I thought, especially knowing that this is one of the earliest movies that incorporated sound, you know, to start it off with, I mean, cause always, and at that point it, it wouldn't have been the case, but I always I always love a good creepy child in a horror movie, um, you know, and, and the, the kids song that they were singing was like just creepy enough to be like, all right, well, I can I can see where if somebody watching this in 1931 was like, good Lord, that was a morbid little song being sung by children. Um, you know, I, I, that may not have started the trend of let's put creepy kids in movies to scare people. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a great first scene of the movie and it basically laid the foundation for the whole story. Yeah. I thought it was very simple, right? There, it, it wasn't too complex trying to set up too many possible avenues of, you know, possible misdirection or red herrings. Like we're pretty much going to tell you what's going on. These kids are going to sing about it. Their, their mothers are going to clarify some things. And then we're going to see the, murder like the word murder show up and then you get the entrance of the murderer it's like yeah that that's pretty much everything i need to know right now so thank you very much for these three and a half minutes i hope the rest of the movie isn't as obvious as the the first handful of minutes were but yeah i mean i in terms of setting up the film very effective i agree with everything that's been said <laughs> Dennis, did you get a chance to watch? Uh... Yeah, I did. Now, the one thing, I, I watched both the title version for half of it, and I did watch the English version. I was just curious because you said the science is murder, which I thought, too. What's interesting on the English version, because what they do is they'll suppose the English text over, and it just says 10,000 marks reward missing. It doesn't say murder in that one version, which is weird. Hmm. So I was just wondering how when they translate it, it was interesting how they, if that was correct that it was missing or murder because i was like wondering are they in in the in the german part it looks like it's almost a question mark of something is it murder or is that like i wonder and i took german so i should know this but um 
for two years, but in high school. But I, yeah, I'm I'm just curious what that sign really said in German because to me it looks like something murder, probably for a reward. Yeah. So they 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 refilmed like a lot of this a lot of the movie for to be to be in English. Okay. So they refilmed it. Um, you know, you've got the original version that Fritz Lang did, and then they refilmed a lot of it to be in English. And Peter Lorre played his same part in the English version as well. He had escaped to the U.S. by then because he was also Jewish and knew it was time to get out of Nazi Germany. Um, and that was his first English-speaking movie was this movie. Really? Yeah. So his second English-speaking movie was... The Man Who Knew Too Much, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah, the translation for German to English actually is. That means it looks like it's asking a question on the original sign. Murder doesn't mean, I mean, it means murderer. So then they're asking, somebody's missing, is it a murderer, I guess. Okay. German equivalent would be of that, which, again, not a big deal. But when when they showed the the American one or the English version, it said just something missing, 10,000 marks, somebody missing. So that is kind of interesting because I thought, like, is there already an established murder happening or was the first murder really that girl, you know, or there were kids missing before and those signs are up and there's rumors. And now all of a sudden you actually actually have the first Ellie, I think, or Ellie or whatever her first name is, um, becomes a murder. Cause now all of a sudden it becomes to the paper, but it sounds like it's already been happening because his frustration when he writes the letter was kind of like, I've been trying to get the police, but they just keep ignoring it. So I'm going to go right to the straight to the police. I don't think you do it after the first one. It sounds like there was already missing kids, missing kids. Is it a murder? And then all of a sudden now the murder and they were, you know, now the murder is coming out and trying to take credit for it. I'm just, that a- is actually, that's something that the real Peter Curtin did. The real murderer did. He wrote letters to the newspaper describing the place that he left his victim and they, to the police and they ignored it yeah. they, they were just like there's you know this is we're not even going to bother to go look and so one of his victims sat longer just because the police wouldn't go look but that's taken straight from what would, people were reading in the papers just the year before so i have a question about like and again maybe you're getting into this later but like we're talking about that first shot in the shadow and it appears over there and that's a deliberate shadow and then i'm thinking and i've been trying to think back to like is this you know, well, I'm sure we'll get into the soundtrack or lack of a soundtrack. And is that just because of the time or that was a choice? But I, I found out that it's pretty much lack of, like, they just didn't do that back then. But for the shadows, I was trying to think when they were filming this, is it a light crew that is intentionally creating all the shadows? Because they're just filled with shadows on every scene. Some are more standout, deliberate. But is it just the, the technique that they had to film? They had to have a light crew there because the, maybe the film and the speed of the film or, you know, and having adequate lights, they're always filming people, but the clock's got a shadow. Everybody in the film has a shadow. So there's a light kit or, you know, right off set somewhere shining light on these people all the time. And I was wondering if that was an artistic choice or if that was just the here's the limitations of the technology at the time that they had to use these external lights to be able to film and light the scene. So Jason got the DVD from the library and it has got commentary by the guys who are experts on the movie and on German expressionism at the time. And it's absolutely an artistic choice. It is. Okay. Yeah. Right. He, he set the stage for that kind of using the shadows as, as a way to show your character without showing the character the same way with the whistle. You've got that whistle that you always hear when he's around, which then even ends up being a major plot point because that's how it gets identified. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was just because, like, you know, like I know when they show the, you know, just the shadow on a sign that that was clearly artistic choice in the way they're filming the cinematography. I just wasn't sure when it was like every other object seems to have a shadow throughout the film. Was that the, you know, was that a, was that the byproduct? But that's interesting. Okay, so the DVD has a really good, good. Um, okay, that'd be, I'd be really interested to hear hear that. That'd be awesome. And see, that's what I that's what I take away from this movie is and the the whole use of or if you even want to say overuse of shadow. Um, or obvious use of shadow uh, really made me think of the whole I, I know that you know I think the comment was earlier on that the whole point of the movie is you know watch your children closely or, or protect your children or things like that but I, the point I took away from this movie was just the the idea of how something like this can just breed paranoia and so the whole idea of using a shadow like you don't really ever see you hear the whistle um, it's, I think, did you say it's, it's a little bit like Jaws. You don't see it, but you hear the whistling, you hear the, the hall of the mountain King over and over again. Um, and you don't see the killer, but there are shadows everywhere. And I, I kind of felt like as I'm watching the movie, I'm like the shadow of what he's doing, the shadow of how he's affecting this town and these parents and these people is everywhere. Like you can't get away from it. People are paranoid. People are starting to panic. They're turning on each other. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely saw that as a, as an artistic choice, um, you know, to, to really incorporate the idea of shadow everywhere. Cause for lack of a better term, this guy is the phantom menace. <laughs> well played. That's a good one. Well played. Okay. So what do, what do you guys think is the best scene in the movie? You got to pick one scene as the best scene. What are you going to, which one are you going to pick? I'm going to go and Peter Laurie, oh, if somebody wants to go first, go ahead. No, you already started. Good boy. <laughs> when he breaks down, he gets his lines at the end, and there's the big kind of, if you want to call it a monologue, and I think the anguish and the torture of you presenting this problem of this is me, I have this issue, what are you going to do with it? What do you know, like, I can't help it. And I think it's a pretty passionate, he throws people into a, you know, how do you deal with this problem now? Because you want to hate him, and we do. But at the same time, he's explaining that this is not my choice. This is something that I, I am sick. I am ill. And what do we do with the sick and ill in our society, especially when they're harming our children? It, it gives you that ethical dilemma to a certain degree where you don't feel necessarily, I wouldn't say, well, would it be sympathy? Maybe it would be sympathy or empathy maybe a little bit. But um, but I think that that scene at there where because now it just, you, you, you know all along it's him. So there's no hiding of who done it. But now you get to hear him talk really for the first time. And what he says isn't like, it, 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 it's almost disarming to a certain degree for people with this kind of mock trial going on and what appears to be like a basement somewhere. So I think all that. three of these movies do a great job of adding a bit of sympathy for the bad guy, mm -hmm. right? We feel bad that the kangaroo court's about to pull this guy apart, you know? And Norman Bates, we feel a little bit bad. This guy's got major issues. You know, he's got trouble. And then even Buffalo Bill, I'm like, this guy's messed up. He, yeah. I mean, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. But I, and that's not the best scene, but the scene where he's talking to her in the pit and he keeps trying to say, you know, it will put the lotion on. It will put the lotion on. And he, you can, it, Ted Levine does a fantastic job of showing you that he's having difficulty controlling the sadness he has for the creature that he's 
trying to kill. Yeah. You know, he's trying to keep separate. He, you can see him struggling and then, you know, way he overcomes that is to start screaming at her in a different well, way. They're fighting the urges too. They're, they're, they're battling their demons and you get to experience it through those exchanges. And in this one with M it's, it's again, the whistling that never seems perfect. You know, it's not like he's whistling like the best whistle ever. And then there's the one scene where he's whistling and it's like almost an angry, frustrated, like, I can't control this. And he's whistling and like you can feel the struggle of him trying to keep it at bay and keep those bad thoughts at bay. And, and, he, and he's struggling and the whistling becomes, you know, it's not like an enjoyable, sinister whistle, you know, which, which it maybe sort of feels like in the beginning. But then you start to see, see that it's just it's almost torture for him, you know, what he's going through. So, yeah, it, it, similarities there. What he says is that he is tormented by the souls night and day, the tormented by his victims, tormented by the thoughts of their mothers, tormented always and forever, except when he's doing it. So the only way that he can stop the torment is when he's in the act. And even the letter is like, I almost want to get caught. Yeah. 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 The best scene for me, I don't know if I'd call this the best scene, but maybe it's the plot device whatever i really like how you got the cops who are like listen we got to find this guy right now and then you got the underworld who's like we got to find this guy right now these cops are all over the place because of this guy and we got to get rid of him right yeah it was it was and they kept cutting back and forth between the meeting with the cops and the and the gangster take a little of the uh of uh, dark night where it's like the bad guys are having that meeting (laughs) yeah yeah you know, there's this yeah, guy. Exactly. Yeah. It was much more, it was much more enlightened than I thought it was going to be for a 1931 movie. I just was like, wow, they're really talking about the struggle of the psychology of the murderer, the child murderer here. Are we really exploring that? And then to leave it with the question unanswered of what do you do? What, I mean, f- Fritz Lang wants to say that the, you know, that the point is to take better care of your kids. But I think the question is who's going to cast the first stone. I think that's what the question is. Right. Nice. Do you, do you put the mad dog down like the lady in the, in the kangaroo court says you should do, or do you commit them to an asylum and try to care for them or something? I don't know. It's tough. I watched it with my 18 year old too. And she was like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I was like, wow, this movie is 90 years old. (laughs) Well, I, I, I can't say, but like what you just said, like codifies it so well, like what I have, what really hooked me into this movie. And I know we were talking about like a comparison to Jaws. This movie almost did for me what Jaws does where, yeah, it's about the shark and it's about an adventure on the ocean, but that's great but it's also an exploration of humanity. And not only with, you know, in Jaws, you have those three lead characters, you know, like each hitting the problem from a different aspect, but then it's also all about the, the townspeople and, or the island people and how are they responding and the mayor, how is he responding? And, oh, well, is the shark a big problem or, hey, you know, it can happen, but we're still going to go swimming and odds are we'll be okay and all that. I had the same feels watching this movie, just seeing everybody respond or maybe not respond, but react to what was happening. And I saw a lot of, I, I heard and felt a lot of the same beats like, well, I don't have kids. This doesn't affect me. Or, you know, uh, um, we all need to be in this together. Well, 
everyone's not in it together, guys. And I think that was like the city planners or the government was like, not everyone's going for the, hey, let's do this together. So how do we get people on board with this? And I mean, it was like, wow. So it kind of was, in a way, a lot of it was like less about the killer and catching the killer and more just watching everybody in society react. And like you said, like that hit me like, holy buckets, 90 90 years old, like, wow. And I, you know, I, 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 I know where our podcast is talking about movies, but how much it's like, how far have we come in 90 years? Because we're still struggling with this same thing. And, and maybe, maybe, and maybe that's not like something that will eventually, you know, that's just part of the human condition is to deal with these things. And how do you get everybody on board and how do you get, so Anyways, I'm, 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 I'm rambling more. D, you had a much more eloquent way of, of saying it. Uh, but no, I completely agree. And that was, I can't pick one scene, but that, those were my favorite scenes in the movie. And that's what really was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, just how this movie brought out, you know, the different aspects of humanity and responding to, you know, a crisis, uh, uh, an emergency, uh, thing was favorite i mean favorite scene in the movie for me is probably the one dennis mentioned at the very end when he just they bring him into that court and he just starts to unleash and try to explain or just try to unburden his soul on you know why he's been doing what he's doing um but if i'm going to pick a different one um i would go pick the scene where there's the kind of little old man and he's walking down the street and the little girl or the kid stops and asks what time it is and all of a sudden, everybody starts crowding around like, why are you talking to this kid? What are you doing? And I think the reason that that scene hit me while I was watching it was what I couldn't get out of my head watching this movie was the idea that it's 90 years old. This was 1931. And I'm thinking, this is 1931 and Germany. What is going on in the early 1930s and Germany? It's, I don't even want to say the calm before the storm. It's the like despair before the storm of the Great Depression and what the people of Germany were going through and all the unemployment and just all of the just the absolute I mean that's what I used to teach in my social studies class was just the absolute desperation that led to the rise of uh, the Nazi party to replace the Reichstag and you know watching this movie I'm I'm watching a scene where you have this community that I'm sure in any other time they would have been a close-knit community of people. You know, there's business owners. There's, you know, it's probably not a big enough place that, uh, although they do say I think there's like a million people or something like that in the city. But, um, you know, you'd think that in a normal time, these people wouldn't be jumping on each other at the first chance they get. But because of the despair and the paranoia and the just this creeping feeling that you can't, you feel helpless to do anything about, um, you know, I think that kind of sums up what the people of Germany were feeling like during the Great Depression and during this late 20s, early 30s time. But just that scene to me as I'm watching it and everybody starting to gang up on this man just because he told the little kid what time it was. Just I, it, I, I could not separate that. I could not divorce it from what was going on in this period in history. Um, and so that scene, even though it may not be a major scene in the movie, like that one hit me as I was watching it. Well, and again, you know, how, how 
close-knit and strong of a society we are slash how easy is it to divide people, pit people against each other? And, do you know what I'm saying? Like I, that, those themes, those beats that I... I which, I, which is totally why it's still relevant today. I, that's exactly it. It's yeah. still it's still relevant. It it's still yeah, people it's, are be like, you know, oh, this person must be the person because he just talked to that kid, you know, and um, turning on what neighbor and turning on people and dividing and all that other stuff. And, and yeah, it is relevant. I think it, I think a little bit of Twilight Zone and Rod Serling and some of the points he tried to make, like when this tragic. I always think of monsters are doing on Maple Street. You know, and in this case, there is really a monster. So that's our question at the end is then what do you do with them? Is I think what the, the questions we're left hanging with. But um, but before that, you're, you're there. You know, you see all the people, like you said, turning on each other to a certain degree and, and thrown in this chaos and confusion. And Rod Serling's thing was always looking at, like, how people handle a tragedy. How do you handle something that's unknown? How do you, you know, do you turn on each other? Do you do you, what do you do in those situations? I think then the ultimate question to me, we, we were going back to, I think is just the, the, a little bit of, and I, and I, and I, it's not exactly the same thing, but when I think of 12 angry men, 12, 12 angry men leaves you as a kid, I remember going, but wait, did he, did he get, is he guilty? Was he not guilty? Asking my dad is probably like an eight year old at the time or a 10 year old, because I, my dad just saw that movie over and over and over and over again. And, um, and I remember like being somewhat frustrated as a child that I wanted the answer. And then I realized as you grow older, that it's the question that's more important than the answer. And in this, I think it's the same thing. And to me, the question is, what do you do with somebody who's mentally ill? Because we now have seen that this person is mentally ill. What do you do with the mentally ill of society, especially if they're harmed to others? Is it morally justified to kill them and execute them? Is it morally justified to put them in jail and take care of them and pay for them? you know, and keep them and try to keep them away from people. But what if he gets out, then he harms again? Are you now culpable because you, allow, you know, so it, it opens that whole big discussion and, and thought process of what do you do with the sick in society that people are, are not well and are harming others? And do we become monsters or, you know, which one is the great, is it, you know, start thinking of society, you know, which is the greater good for society. The answer to that question in Psycho is you put him away for 20 years, and then when you let him out, he starts killing people again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Are we? Psycho 2, written by or directed by? It's uh, the guy who did Friday Night, right? Exactly. Same guy who did Friday Night. Uh, Tom Holland. Yeah, that's right. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. That's yeah. right. You guys seen Psycho 2? Yes. That's yeah. pretty good. It's, yeah. It's worth watching. Psycho 2 is pretty good. Yeah. I hate it when they, the worst thing about Psycho that I think when I get the bad taste is when it was um, the remake with um, the, com- the guy who's a comedian. Um, it's gone. It's yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. Oh. That was just, that was okay, I, I get a quick question. So who who played Anne Hesh's sister who comes looking for her after that? Ooh. Uh, is it Julian Moore? That's what I was wondering. It, it is Julianne Moore, I think. It is. I think who, played Clarice who, Starling. who played Clarice Starling in the next? Dang, sorry. I yeah, no, I said, I, I just, just occurred to me. I'm just like, did, was she in like the sequel, the bad sequel to both of these? She was in the bad sequel to Psycho and she was in the bad sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Yep. There you go. Yep. All right. She participated in the eating of uh, his brains. Oh yeah. But she was in uh, the Big Lebowski, so that she's involved of all things and Boogie Nights. Respect. And uh, Jurassic Park Two, which that's a stinger. <laughs>
the, the takeaway is if you want your movie to suck as a sequel, Julianne Moore's the way to go. There yeah. you go. Yep. Now, okay, we want to flip the psycho. Obviously, that I just wonder if uh, you know if it's a getting a I don't know the sequel to the you know the Hannibal one with Julianne Moore in there. I remember watching it. I didn't think it. I wondered always too. Like obviously, the first one is such a classic that the other one is not going to be able to top that. If that other one was the first one, would we have felt as bad about it? You know, as people sound like they're feeling because I didn't think it was horrible. I think when you got to the third and the you know whatever third one, then it was like bad but i think the more julianne Moore, i thought it was at least entertaining kept it was creepy enough it wasn't great but it wasn't as bad as it's sounding like like the whole, most worst sequel in the world type of thing we turned it off in my house when he started feeding him his own brain <laughs> that was the turnoff point for us I, I've, I've never actually really liked ray liotta as an actor all that much so i really enjoyed, enjoyed those scenes. <laughs> I, I thought that movie was, I just couldn't handle Clarice going away with him. That I, could, that I just couldn't get over that part. Yeah. So okay. anyway, anyway. Okay. So over to Psycho, we did touch a little bit. We don't need to talk about casting on, for, on uh, M because we don't have anything on that, but uh, we didn't talk about casting at all on Psycho. So we've got Anthony Perkins. Yep. We've got Janet Lee. Yep. Who, by the way, from 1984 to 2002, wrote four books, including two novels. So that's pretty impressive. Um, we have Vera Miles. Yes. Who needed a movie to finish out her contract. And so this, she was supposed to do some other movie and got pregnant and couldn't do it. So Hitchcock said, all right, come do this movie for me. Um, you have John Gavin, who played the part of Sam Loomis. You have Pat Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock's daughter is the one who's playing the other girl who works in the office. You didn't know that. No. Tell me your face. You didn't know that. Yeah. I did not so know the that. other girl who works in the office with Janet Lee's character with Marion, uh, whatever her last name is, um, that's Pat right. Hitchcock. That's Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. And then the detective is played by... Martin Balsam, who is also in 12 Angry Men that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. nice. And, and I also want to point out as well, because you, when you mentioned, you know, Marion, whatever her last name was, uh, Marion's last name is Crane, which is also a bird, just like Clarice <laughs> Starling. Yes. <laughs> just, just like in the one scene of M, there might have been a bird sitting in a bush. I, I don't know. I, that's all I had. <laughs> I tried to connect all three, but it was a bit of a stretch. Eight-year-olds, dude. Eight-year-olds. Eight <laughs> What's a petter ass, Walter? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so first scene, first scene in that movie, you've got what was supposed to be a helicopter shot, but it was too unsteady, so they really just did it like panning across a photograph, and then you go into the apartment where two people are obviously engaged in an affair. Nooner. It's a nooner. It's a nooner. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. Is it the first nooner we ever get in uh, cinema history? I don't know, but it's, yeah. I'm on my lunch break. I was kind of surprised that that would like, I mean, I don't see every movie that came out in the sixties, but that surprised me a lot of that stuff that that was there in the sixties. See, I heard that Hitchcock did a lot of, he, 
fluffed up certain scenes so that the censors would kind of, they could scale those back so oh. that they would leave the shower scene and, and the murder scene and stuff like that. Oh. So he went kind of full throttle with the bra and underwear, you know, so the censors would go after him there. And they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. What just, happened was, well, I mean, I mean, I don't think there's probably not much question about what the best scene is. Right. So first, let's talk about first scene. Let's talk about first scene. Any first thoughts scene. on first scene? Well, I, I want to make a, an original comment about the the whole, you know, that they're enjoying each other's company in the middle of the day, being in a movie in the 60s. Um, it was my understanding that there would be train tunnels to let me know when those kind of scenes were going to take place. <laughs> I mean, I've I've seen Hitchcock before. I know how he handles this kind of stuff, and and I had no train tunnel, so I felt lost. Yes, yes. We'll explain it to your to you when you're older, John. Don't okay. worry about it. Okay. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. So the um, apparently the guy uh, John Gavin, the guy playing Sam Thomas, was an ultimate gentleman, and this was the very first scene that he and Janet Lee shot together, and. After about 10 or 20 takes, Alfred Hitchcock goes to Janet Lee and says, not really feeling a lot of passion here. Can you take this in hand? And she said, what? He goes, can you take this in hand? And she said, yes, I can. And she aroused the passion in her co-actor enough to make the scene a little more believable. Anything for the scene. Right. I bet that's not part of the Screen Actors Guild contract anymore. <laughs> okay. Any other thoughts about opening scene? Nothing. Well, after hearing that little tidbit, I've got about six or 700, but I mean, <laughs> like, uh, well, that, wow, that's, that's interesting. Well, acting, <laughs> a- acting is hard. <laughs> acting is hard. <laughs> okay. So best scene, best scene, go. It's the shower scene. The it's shower scene. hundred percent the shower scene. Definitely got the point across. Um, yeah, but I think that's a, it's almost like that's a given that you got to go to another scene. Yeah, I. It's almost I, like everybody's going to say that one, so you got to go to the second one. Which I'm gonna. I think it's a toss up between the um, Martin Balsam going down the stairs. Um, yeah. And I think it's also just the reveal. I remember watching the reveal. what the the reveal at the end where it's the, he comes in, spins her, yeah, and it's. She she turns the the chair around, and it's the, the the mother in the chair, the skeleton, and then all of a sudden he comes at that door and he's got the wig already on. It's just like, I remember seeing that there was a show that did there was a note, and I know somebody had one of you had the book that that history of horror book, and there was also a, a show that was on that aired on TV frequently. It was always kind of replayed, and they would go into like the great classic characters and horrors, and, and I can't remember who it was, but they would always show that scene. And they in the one that they did show was the was the obviously the reveal of the, I'm try, I gotta try to track that one down and see what show that was, but they would always show that part where it's like creeping in and you know and then she turns the chair around and yeah I think that I think maybe that the reveal is powerful. Yeah, it is. Well, the and the the problem with this movie is that it was made well before any of us were born, and so it's so popular. We all just kind of grew up knowing who Norman Bates really was and knowing that the shower scene was coming. And so that was kind of embedded in us. I would say to me, I think the most, the the actual most impactful, frightening scene 
is that scene when the detective reaches the top of the stairs and the camera angle is from above. And it's such a perfect use of music because you see her come out the door in silence, come out the door for just a split second before that music comes in with their and it made me jump out of my seat. And the vertigo effect, the vertigo effect going down the stairs with the falling was just, yeah, that was just, yeah. Just shocking upon shocking. And he's got that slash on his face or whatever. Yeah. Now, now how old were you guys? How old was everybody when they saw this? First, when they first saw it, were you younger? Were you older? Were you sheltered from it? That was high school, probably. I don't know if I, I don't know if I watched it all the way through. I feel like I did watch it all the way through once, but I was not smart enough to like fully understand it or whatever. Um, so really, the first first viewing for me was in the last couple of weeks. Really? Wow. Um, we okay. would do like my my dad would get on a stretch of like watching movies on a theme or movies by a particular director and i remember during high school he was on a pretty good stretch of hitchcock movies so i all kind of at the same time when i was probably about 15 16 we watched marnie psycho uh north by northwest i had seen the birds when i was a little kid Uh, but he always he loved hitchcock and we used to always watch uh, hitchcock presents and uh, but the movies i didn't see until high school but then it was like Boom, 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 one right after the other of like all the Hitchcock classics. See, and I'm I'm made fun of on this podcast. Well, not yours, but like on our podcast about the about the age thing. But I am thankful because Oh, oh, give me uh, a minute. Because <laughs> I was I I can say that I, I did not know anything about this when I first saw it all the way through. Like I I mean I you know, you hear psycho, whatever, but and shower scene but i don't know who the killer was in the shower scene i didn't know it was a guy i didn't know what was going on but i've seen the scene before you know and he kind of knew that was coming but the actual reveal at the end of the movie the whole thing i got to experience that fresh for a first time probably as about a 12 year old so i keep thinking it was like john your uncle i remember showed you a lot of things that were probably inappropriate at an earlier age with movies and just let him watch them so my dad it was the i was the youngest of five so there's four older brothers so by just the default case of, you know what, eh, it's just one kid, so what if he gets a little screwed up? I think that might have been the philosophy of their older brothers who want to see the movie. So I get to see a lot of these. Some they try to send me to bed. I used to go and listen and like creep down the stairs and try to see what they're, because I want to be part of whatever they're watching. And then some might be like, oh, now I'm afraid to go back upstairs. Um, but, but Psycho I saw in its entirety, probably at about the age of 11 or 12. And... For me, it was like I got the full effect of that movie, and I did not know it was him. And I was totally like, "Oh my god!" At the end, you know, like it was it was good to see because I had no knowledge of it prior to it, other than uh, I've seen parts of the shower scene as a clip from a movie. Well, and and Dennis, for you, the shower scene was doubly shocking because you'd never seen running water before. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he'd never seen a naked woman before. Well, I, that's <laughs> anyway, but isn't that isn't that still true? One day. <laughs> <laughs> Nice my story, my nice story with this movie there. is very similar to that of D's. I, I, I know I saw this one, I think like maybe when I was in junior high, but you don't understand a lot of what you're seeing at that age, right? And so it didn't have a lot of, didn't hold a lot of significance. Um, now, unlike D, I have seen this movie many, many times since then. Um, so maybe like late high school or college is like when I, 
finally sat down and watched it top to bottom and was like, okay, oh, wow. Oh, that's really like, oh, that's weird. That's crazy. That's bizarre. Like that's when the, the every, everything started to, uh, to click and, and make more sense. Well, for me as a, as a kid too, it was like going through the, the, the emotions of, you know, when you're younger like that, you, you, you know, here's the detective and he's going to save the day. So that's why I think that stair scene had a big impact on me because it literally, like you said, comes out of nowhere. The amount of time I'd have to go back and see, cause I haven't seen it this week or whatever before this, but how quick it is that your hopes of him coming up, coming up and he's, he's going to save the day. He's the cop. He's you know, right. the police. He's, he's, he's got a weapon. He's going to, he's going to be able to save the day. This is where, where it's all going to be. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just, boom, he's down. Like not even a fight. There's no fight. It's like, it's like pretty much he's just like taken out like that. And it was like def- deflating to you of like, Oh my God, that I actually thought at the end that that girl was going to get killed too. I thought she was going to get killed as well at the end of the film when he comes running in. So when the guy comes and saves the day, you're like, Oh my God, thank God I can go to bed, you know, without having to worry about this. Cause somebody caught him, you know? And, and I just, that, that part of it, like it plays with you because the cop who you think is going to be the, you know, the save, the save the day guy ends up getting taken out like nothing, you know, by a woman at that time, I'm still thinking it's, you know, you're almost still thinking it's a woman, but you know, something's up. You think it's a combination of people. And I remember thinking, I was confused at the end. And then when you realize, wait a second, he's talking in the cell, you know, in the cell by himself and you hear the voice you're going, but I heard a different voice, you know, right. You know, and it was like, it, so as a kid, yeah, it's a lot to take in. Um, but that's think why I think that's how, Think about how the people who saw this movie in theaters for the first yeah. time, oh. Janet Lee, they think she's the main character. Uh, yes, yeah. 45 minutes in, what? What? She's dead. What the heck? So we, we all had, you know, some sort of, I've seen this clip experience, right? They, even the previews for this movie, before it came out, they didn't show any scenes from the movie. It was Alfred Hitchcock walking around the set and talking about, oh, you know, this is a great scene that happens here. And here we have, he did, but he refused to let anybody who wasn't involved in a particular scene know what was happening. He had a chair made up for the Mrs. Bates. You know, like everybody's got their own chair with their own name on it. There was a chair that said Mrs. Bates on there so that not even everybody who was on the crew knew what would happen. He, <laughs> when he got the rights to the story, he went and bought all of the books that he could buy so that people wouldn't know how the book ended. Um, and at that time, what was going on is that people would just wander in at any moment in the movie. And so he was like, what are we going to do when somebody's thinking they're going to see Janet Lee and they walk in the middle of this movie and they're like, where is she? And it's going to spoil every, I mean, there's surprise after surprise after surprise in this movie because you, you start by watching. It's like from dust till dawn that you're talking about. You watch thinking you're going to see a Quentin Tarantino bank robbery movie. And all of a sudden there are vampires. You're watching a movie that you think is this girl who's decided to steal money and run away. Suddenly it turns into a murder movie that's, I mean, like the first slasher flick, like the, the stabbings didn't happen. And then you, you're you like, you've your interest in the character, right? You've, you're like, oh, well, she's dead. So now you're rooting for Norman Bates, right? That's how they do it. They have that nice conversation so that you're, you're like, well, I'm not rooting for her anymore. She's dead. I got to root for this guy because this poor guy's got to clean up after his psychopath mother upstairs. 
And so then it's a little bit later on that you go, oh yeah, like the detective is going to fix everything. He's going to solve it. Oh, nope, he's dead too. And then a little bit later on, you get them talking to the sheriff and he's like, his mother, his mother died 10 years ago. And you're like, what? How did that? And then there's another mystery, a brand new mystery, you know, 79% into the movie that you go, what? How is she dead? Who is this other person? What's going on? And it's not until you get that reveal where you, the chair turns is she around. Really dead? Is she really dead? Is yeah. She, yeah. And, not really dead. She's over here still, you know, but. And then even, and then he comes out dressed as her, which is shocking in and of itself. What? And a little bit funny. I just got to say, Anthony Perkins in the dress is a little comical, but his weird face. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then you have that whole psychological explanation that happens at the end that you're just like, wow, he's not even him. He's her. He's been her the whole time. And then you get that great, that last moment, you know, she wouldn't even hurt a fly. And he's looking up at the camera and he's just, he goes from, he looked like, who, did, who was that? Andrew Garfield. Like when I saw this, I'm thinking, oh, this is a sweet looking, nice looking man. He looks like Andrew Garfield, right? He looks like a berry kid you'd let mow your yard or whatever, right? And he moves in that last little moment of the movie into the psycho. Full on mother. Yeah. Which I, for the first time, I don't know. I caught this for the first time ever. There's just a hint of a dissolve on his face. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Is it like a skull that starts showing through? I think it's, yeah. Mother. Yep. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's very fast. And if, if you blink, you're not going to see it right, right at the very end. So I mean, and to me that, that, that ending is one of the things that stands out about this movie is, is how unresolved everything really is. And you can kind of say it circles back to M what do you do with this, with this, with this part of, of society? Do you take care of them? Do you lock them away and take care of them and help, you know, if they're doing something that they can't help, but do put them in a safe place where they can't do it anymore, but still take care of them. Or are these people that don't deserve that opportunity because of the horrid things that they've done, regardless of why, so or the fact that rehabilitated too, you know, yeah, like so, the the fact that the original Psycho ends with that question mark still there of, you know, like it, it almost takes me back to, um, you know, Clockwork Orange, mm-hmm. the end of Clockwork Orange. You know, if you guys haven't seen that, but you, you know, you have Alexander Delarge and camera zooms in. What's the last thing he says? They cured me all right. And you know, that's like, that's absolutely not the thing that happened. I get that same sense watching Psycho. Like, what what, what status is he going forward? And then you get the, you know, eventually you get Psycho 2 and Psycho 3. Yeah. Well, and I think with all three of the movies that we're talking about tonight, it, that's just, that's the mark of a good horror movie is it's not going to resolve, it's not going to resolve the, suspense or it's not going to resolve the terror for you 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 you're left you know, each of these m left open-ended you've got to figure out for yourself what what path are they going to take um you know this one it leaves it with that you know 
fading out from his, you know, just his eyes staring straight ahead. And then um, Silence of the Lambs is, okay, so you caught Buffalo Bill, but look what you let loose <laughs> in the process of catching Buffalo Bill. Was it worth it? Or did you unleash somebody who could be way worse? I know he says he's having an old friend for dinner, but, you know, um, you've unleashed <laughs> somebody that could be way worse than Buffalo Bill because he's the creepy thing about him is he's smart and he's a, he seems a little bit more under control than Buffalo Bill was. So I think that's one of the things about each of these three movies that is just a, a sign of a good horror movie is it's not going to give you a clear resolution at the end. It's going to leave it open so that when you leave the theater, you're like, oh, well, the, the threat's not actually gone. Although I will say as a, as a young kid at the time watching Psycho, I did feel relief at the end. Mm. I felt like... That he had been caught. You, know, you, were, you were scared that, like, you were scared because the way they were talking, they had him, it was contained, he's in a padded room, he's locked up. So you felt some sense that the threat is, is controlled now. As a kid, I'm not asking that bigger question as a kid. As an adult, I would. Like, what do you do with him now, and where does he go from here? And obviously, you know, in, in Psycho 2. But, but, like, at the time, I had just been through a roller coaster of everyone, is, anybody can get killed. This guy's, like, didn't know it was the guy doing it. But in the end, I, I realized it is now. And this guy's a murderer. But now, at least we got him. Like, I was like, we got him. The cops got him. I feel good about it. Kind of like, you know, in, 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 in other movies have done this, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, I don't know. I always had the mixed feeling of the original, if you've all seen the original of Invasion of Body Snatchers. When he comes running and they finally, all of a sudden, like, you're, you're like, no, there's no hope because we're all screwed because no one's believing him. They think he's, then all of a sudden they come by. There was this big accident, these kind of pod-like things. And all of a sudden they look at him like, really? And they're going to go out and do something about it. So you kind of have the sense of, are we, do we have a shot? Is there some hope? They leave some hope in that case that you kind of have possibly can neutralize the threat. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think leaving that question open is, is a, is a powerful tool to make you think about as an older person, as a younger person, I just need to know he was locked up. Yeah. And that was good enough for me. So I felt good. Like, okay, he's good. He, but they got him. And everybody survived. The other people survived. The one, one really quick connection too to another movie, and this is Wes Craven just paying tribute to this, is when we talk about early exits for, for people. I remember having the same sort of feeling when watch, watching Scream for the first time with Drew Barrymore. I'm like, Drew Barrymore is in this movie. She's going to be the star. And all of a sudden, and then when you see her actually get killed, I'm like, wait a second. Like, what, what just happened? Like, it's five minutes into the movie and Drew Barrymore is dead. How is that possible? She's the big star. You know, because I don't think the other girl at the time was very, I mean, she might have been in TV shows, but Drew Barrymore was the bigger name to me, you know, and all of a sudden she's gone. Samuel Jackson, you know, but, but I think Wes Craven was doing this almost as a, you don't know what's going to happen for the rest of this movie and who's going to get killed. And, and, and good movies do that. Walking Dead at its best was that, I think. Yeah. You know, when you don't know that a character is going to be taken out and you're shocked by this person getting taken out, you know that no one is safe. It's not like you know that, like, you know, it's one of the things about Star Trek for me was you know who's going to get killed. <laughs> it's always going to be that other guy who comes down with him to the planet. Right. Right. You know, but it's not going to be one of the main characters. Kirk, Spock, Bones, and that other dude. Yeah. And, and in some ways you like that. <laughs> you had a sense of some sort of, you know, comfort level that your guys aren't going to get killed, the ones that you care about. But at the same time, man, when, when it does happen in a, in, a, in, a, in a TV show or a movie is bold enough to just take out somebody that you're like, whoa, they just took that person out. That's not possible. 
that just throws the rest of the movie up in up in you know up your arms up because you have no idea what's about to happen next. Anybody can go. When when you when you started scary feeling when you started to say reality. when you started to say Sam Jackson, were you going to mention that stupid movie with the sharks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> like, killed like right away. Yeah, yeah. I, I I hated that, but that made that movie made me so angry. It was bad, but Samuel Jackson's like dead, like right away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you um do you, do you guys know like the story about what Hitchcock tried to do to keep people from getting spoiled on the surprise of the movie, like especially because you're gonna kill your main character he, so uh, early on? He he instituted a no entry policy in theaters after so after the film started, he made sure that movie theaters were not allowing people into the movie. Yeah. Sorry, that was the start time. You missed it. Come to the next showing. Which which supposedly is the start of movie showtimes. Like before that, it was you just run your movie on a loop and people just buy a ticket, come in. You could stay as long as you wanted to. You, If you came in and you missed the first 30 minutes of the movie, well, well, I'll stay and watch the rest of the movie. And then I'll stay for the first 30 minutes and then I'll leave. So you might see stuff out of order just because the movies would keep running and running. Um, and, you know, he he's like, that doesn't work for me. And so he instituted with the movie theaters, he really pushed the movie theaters. He's like, nope, I'm demanding that you have start and end, uh, that you have start times for these showings and that you do not let people in after that start time has commenced. Um, And I guess there was a lot of pushback from the theaters. But then when this was so popular, the theaters all of a sudden were like, hey, you know what? Um, Yeah, if we make people pay per showing as opposed to just buy a ticket and sit here all day if you want to. Uh, we can actually make more money that way. So uh, that was, I don't know if it's the first movie that ever did specific showtimes, but it's probably the most famous one that started that. I also heard he sent, um, I was reading in one article, um, he sent one of his assistants out to like try to buy up as many copies of the novel as possible so people couldn't read the story before going to see the movie. Like he was trying to do everything he possibly could so that you know the surprises were not spoiled. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that marketing campaign and it really paid off because they had people lined up around the block, but it was like, not the president of the United States, not the brother of the theater owner, not the queen of England. Nobody mm-hmm. gets in after the movie starts. I want to say that they, they did on uh, the soundtrack show uh, that when they talked about psycho, I think uh, David W. Collins told the story that there was some, and was it, it was like a foreign dignitary or it was like a Senator or no, it wasn't the president. I, I don't know, but there was someone that was like, yep, sorry, you're not getting in. <laughs> it's a pregnant you know? lady. Yeah. There's a pregnant lady who they're trying to, the, the guy was like, my wife is just pregnant and that's why she's late. And the theater manager was like, I'm really sorry, but she can sit in my office until the next showing happens. <laughs> and like you said, what resulted was people waited in line because you have, if you're, if, if you can't go in whenever you want to, you've got to wait for a specific time. So you got lines out of the theater to watch this movie, which made everyone else interested in what was going on. And then as they're waiting in line to go in, you've got people coming out of the theater like they've just been on a roller coaster ride who are laughing and crying and like, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, which just gave fuel to the fire, right? You know, we, we talked a little bit about the shower scene the blood in the water was not red. That's my trivia question. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. It was not red. Go ahead. Because it's black and white. So who knows? It's a black and white movie. They used. Yeah. Who knows what they used? Jeff knows. Chocolate sauce, right? Yep. Bosco's chocolate syrup. Yep. Which you can still buy, by the way. 
I hear that on the DVD reissue of the movie, if you enter a certain thing called a blood code, it'll introduce the blood into the, you know, that you can enter that in. I think that was just staged in the 90s, Pat. All right. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I, I just want to say, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. You were, you were rolling, man. Something was coming I, right there. Well, I was just saying, um, I would like to go back and have a throwback day at the theaters where you can go in sort of like when video game arcades, kids look them up, video game arcades, great <laughs> places of wonderment. Um, Greatest places to visit. But like when you could go into the video game arcade and you'd pay like five bucks and everything was free play for like five hours or something. Like I would love to have throwback day where you just go into the theater Here's my five bucks. Yeah, just see any movie you want. Walk into this one, walk into that one. I, I'm telling you, man, that'd be sweet. And I'm just saying, if they had that back in the day when The Matrix came out, like I sank an entire year's worth of college tuition in one week into buying tickets to rewatch The Matrix. So I'm just saying, like, that could have that could have like set me up. You know what I'm saying? Throwback day, five bucks, see whatever movie you want. You mean when you go to the movies, you actually only go to one movie? <laughs> So this podcast is going out to the public, Jeff, and I'm just saying. I'm not admitting anything. I was just clarifying so I understand you know, what it is that I can support you in your dream. That's all. Just asking, you just asking a clarifying question. I see. Yes. Okay, me too. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, one more thing on the shower scene. So he sent it expecting them to say something about the nooner scene at the beginning, but censors said nothing about the nooner scene or almost nothing. And then for the shower scene, like three of the five said, we see nudity. And the other two said, we don't see nudity. And then they're like, well, what do we do? And they decided, okay, well, let's send it back to him and say, we, you need to take the nudity out. And so he took it out of the can and then he put it back into the can, shook it up a little bit, gave it back. And the three that saw it before didn't see it. But now the two that didn't see it now saw it. And they said they sent it back again, said, take the nudity out. He says, OK, did the same little shaky shake process, sends it back. And they're like, all right, thank you. I could just I could just imagine like five dudes like sitting around just being like, all right, <laughs> uh, you, uh, hang on, go back, go. Okay, pause. All right, pause I, right there. Okay, one frame forward. Remember? That's it. Okay, that's it. Pause it. Nope. Sorry, you're out. And then the other guys. Are you sure? I don't think so. You know, just know. basically just describing to be, me and my friends in in high school. Just yeah, yeah, just was, to be uh, safe. Yeah. <laughs> These Watching guys would the, love. They would love Fast Times at Richmond High. <laughs> yeah. So because he knew. Janet Lee would be uncomfortable both trying to act and being naked at the same time. He went to a local strip club and got one of the burlesque dancers who's used to being naked all of the time to come and be the body double for Janet Lee. I thought you were going to say he stripped down naked as well. Well, no, he's that got make a cameo. It, that'd make everyone uncomfortable. That would have been the worst cameo for him. <laughs> I think he did that with like Melanie Griffith's mom, and I think she kind of like filed a harassment complaint against him but that's that that's a different movie films right or you didn't but you know that he does like the cameos he's famous for the cameos right yep yeah 
Uh, I, it, educate me, my it man. I mean, yeah. So one of the fun things I remember as a kid was trying to find like in all of his films, cause my dad would be like, he's going to be in every one, but for a second. And you'd be trying to look for him in all the film. And in this one, he's in it in this first six minutes, he's outside uh, her office. He's got a cowboy hat. So that's him. In birds. I remember, I think he walks out of the store. Um, and if, I, cool. if I'm correct, he walks out of the side onto the sidewalk. So he would have little cameos, kind of a little bit like what's his name from uh, from the Mar- um, um, Sam Lee, you know, where he's somewhere in the movie. His he uh, he always has lines though, where where he didn't usually have lines. He just was there somewhere, walking past in the back, and it's always like there he is. There's Alfred Hitchcock. So it was always kind of fun to watch like in a little Where's Waldo, but yeah, that's that's cool. And I would imagine back in 1961 or whatever, I would imagine that would be kind of a really a well, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but would that be quite an oddity in film to see that? Like, see the director in every film yeah. somewhere in a spot? I mean, I mean, now I mean, we've got that became his like one of his trade. I mean, like one of his things was, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know any other directors who I'm sure they did it probably or were in parts. Um, another person who seems, seems to kind of pay tribute to that is um, M. Night Shyamalan. Like, he's always in a movie, he puts himself in a movie as some character somewhere. So, a lot of people like. I By the way, have you I guys seen old? First. What? what old in my M Night Shyamalan's movie that's out right now, or was what's out. the name of it? Old. Oh, I haven't seen it. The Dennis Matuch story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll dance in the grave. <laughs> Love them up. You just knock them right out of the park. <laughs> That was the low hanging fruit. Sorry. The, yeah, the old was not good. I did not enjoy it. Really? Okay. Yeah. No, and he's got a much bigger part in this one. In okay. that one, it's still not like the main part, but it's it's a much bigger part than he usually does. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, I know Dennis is old, but don't talk about low hanging fruit. That's just <laughs> that brings we'll us. Wait back. one day. <laughs> is this one? Is this one we cut to uh, Jason and D's commercial? Yeah, yeah, there it goes. Tom Brady takes care of his balls every week. <laughs> okay, so now moving on to Silence of the Lambs, first scene, best scene, first scene. Okay, so I will tell you this. I didn't uh, – it's been a long time since I've seen Silence of the Lambs. When I saw it the first time, I, I guess I was probably put off or something. I didn't – you know, the tucking scene, I wasn't – emotionally ready for at that moment. So I probably didn't like it as much when I first saw it. Um, but without saying that I like the tucking scene now, <laughs> we keep on going here. The, I did, I noticed something at the beginning that I had not noticed before because I don't think I knew it before, but um, when I was in college, I got a book called the five C's of cinematography. And one of the first things that it talks about in that book is that the actor should never look directly in the camera unless you want the audience to be unsettled. Like they, and they would show, you know, they'd show different cuts where the actor's looking just, you know, above or below or whatever the frame versus one looking right in the camera at you. And it was, it was unsettling. And my gosh, it was like every character of any importance did it in the first 10 minutes of this movie, especially. And the worst of them all was Dr. What's his name? The psychiatrist who was in charge of the, um, Chilton. Yeah. Dr. Chilton. Thank you. He not only looked right in the camera, you could see the slimy oozy. He was hitting on you. Yeah. It was gross. (laughs) 
Like he's not hitting on her. He's hitting on me. I don't yeah. like that. And so the, the fact that they did that in all of those first scenes was what impressed me is that you uh, obviously Chilton did it and her boss did it before that he was looking right into the camera. And then of course, the next very important guy to see Hannibal Lecter is looking right through you. Yep. Yep. Well, it's, it's um, Hannibal Lecter, the only character where they do the extreme close up of the eyes. Cause there are a couple shots of, of Hannibal Lecter where you see just like from bridge of nose to just above eyebrow. Well, and you got Buffalo Bill at the end with the night vision goggles pretty tight yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. would do stuff, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. They did a lot of those extreme right. where you right. did their eyes, but, um, in, in silence uh, specifically though, I feel like Hannibal Lecter is the only one that really gets that treatment where they want you to feel creeped out by his eyes because that's, so, that's the only thing they flash up on the screen for a bit. So they did, they did do it deliberately, but it was more, uh, I mean, it was technical as well. So like, this you when she's walking through the cell for the first time you've got the guy who's saying that he could sniff her smell her um you got the other guy who's just kind of talking weird biblical stuff and they're all in regular barred cells but when she gets in in front of Hannibal he's got the plexiglass thing up the reason that they did that was because they couldn't figure out how to shoot the shots through the bars without covering up all of Anthony Hopkins face. And so like their set designer was just at the bank one day and she's like, why don't I just use like the plexiglass that they use here at the bank as you know, this is the feature. And then the sound guy was like, well, because we won't be able to hear what he says. And and she's like, well, we'll put holes in it because he's got to be able to breathe. Right. And so that's the reason that they have the plexiglass. Now, fast forward, they take him out of that cell so that he can go talk to the senator and put him in a cell with bars. And that's the point that he's really getting into her mind, right? He's really getting in there and trying to control what she's thinking and feeling. And it's at that point, you got those bars, you have to do that extreme close up. Otherwise, the bars are in the way. Um, but it works perfectly because as he's staring into her soul, he's also staring into your soul. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. <Ugh>. Masterful. <laughs> yeah. By the way, those bars when he's in the courthouse yeah. are about this wide. I mean, he could just go, <laughs> I'm out of here. So what did you, you guys think of first scenes? To me, the first scene, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in here. To me, the first real scene is when Starling and Lecter meet. Uh, that kind of gets the movie kicked off, and um, you meet Lecter, you know, she gets stuff thrown on her, and uh, you're you're dropped in the depths with these guys, and you realize, man, these guys are the worst of the worst, and she's got to... She's got to hang out with this guy to figure out what's going on. And the best scene for me is Lecter's ultimate escape from the courthouse in, in Memphis with the, uh, in the ambulance in the amb- When I saw that in the movie theater, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Who was the, what he shot? He got shot. He's on top of the elevator. No, that's not what. 
And then he, when he pulls off that face, I was like, whoa, I, I'm blown away. Yeah, the, the intercut that they did on that was fantastic. I think it is only topped by the intercut of the FBI storming a house and ringing a bell that just happens to be coinciding exactly with when Starling is coming and ringing the bell of Buffalo Bill. That was a dirty, that was a dirty trick. It yeah. was a dirty trick, and it was effective, and I liked it a lot. Yeah. What about you guys? Well, to circle back, what, uh, D, what you were saying about how they did the, the using the plexiglass, I always thought that, it, and maybe this was just a, a bonus for the filmmakers, right? Here she is walking down this corridor with the worst of the worst of the worst, and they're all behind bars. And like, what could be worse that you need something other than bars to hold them back, right? Like, this guy is that bad that he gets plexiglass. He, they can't even risk having, having him behind bars. He needs a whole other type of containment. And that every, every time, even still watching now, every time they use that drawer that they, to transport things in and out of his plexiglass cell, you know, the, the, the drawer shoots out and you know that she needs to put something in or she needs to take something out. And you're just like, she's going to put her hand in there and he's going to pull that drawer back right away and just pop her hand right off at the wrist. Like that is, is incredibly effective. Just, I don't know if it's the sound that accompanies that drawer going in and out or how fast that thing moves. Um, But in terms of a favorite scene for me, I, I don't know. There are so many scenes that are so well done in this movie. Um, you know, Jason, I agree with you. The, the, the reveal and the ambulance, um, you know, and when, when all of a sudden you, you start putting the pieces together in your brain. For me, it's almost faster than my brain can process all of it. I get what's going on, but I don't understand what's going on. And then like, I need a minute to think about it and realize how evil he is how incredibly brilliant he is how much he doesn't give a, you know a flying rip about buffalo bill from minute one he recognizes this is this is his opportunity to escape that's you know that's his whole end game it doesn't buffalo bill or anybody else that doesn't matter he's smart enough to know i play the game and i'm out of here yeah um you know and and even the way it wraps up with um, Clarice on the phone, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, <laughs> Dr. Lecter. And then you just watch him literally fade away, disappear into this crowd of people. And you're just like, what in God's name, how, what, where, when, who, like, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But there are so many of those moments in this movie that just like, it's like a gut punch and just like, Oh, didn't see that coming or Holy smokes. I was just like high tension, high anxiety, right? Like top to bottom. So good. All that I can I'm think a- of when you were repeating what Clarice, when she's saying Dr. Lecter on the phone at the end, all I could think of was back and to the lector, back, <laughs> back and to the lector, back, <laughs> back to the lector, back to the lector. <laughs> That's the same accent, but basically the same accent too. 
So, yeah. I, I for, for me, I think one of the – I've got a couple of different thoughts on, like, favorite scenes. Um, I love the tension of the scene towards the end when he's got the night vision goggles on. Just, yeah. the, I mean, just you're, you're watching this, and I wish there's been a few movies I've been able to see when they've like put them back in the theater again. I would love to go see this movie in a movie theater and just be in a theater with other people, huge screen, dark theater, and I, I just want to hear people holding their breath during that entire sequence with the night vision when he's just he's reaching forward and it's just he's just barely about to touch her face and he pulls away or she moves and and he doesn't quite touch her but he's just so close and it's just so creepy and so tense that I that is one of my favorite scenes of the movie the other option I have for favorite scenes is any time that um, Anthony Hopkins opens his mouth like anytime yeah. he says anything in this movie, I could I just sit there. I know he's a serial killer. I know he eats people, but it it just I want to listen to him talk and just I love the way that he just twists everything. Um, one of my favorites in particular, just just and the way the other people react to him too, is the scene where they've got him in the uh, airplane hangar and they're trying to get the information out of him, and he starts with that whole thing. Tell me, Senator, did you nurse Catherine yourself? Did you breastfeed her? And he's like going into all this stuff, and she's like, "What are you even talking about?" And he's like, "Amputate a man's leg, and he can still feel it tickling." Tell me, Mom, when your little girl is on the slab, where will it tickle you? And then it just, and then they start to put him away, and and then he just unleashes and he's like all right well this is how tall he is and this is how much he weighs and it and then at the end i love the final comment at the end is like and if uh, but if i think of any more i'll let you know oh and senator just one more thing love your suit yeah i'm <laughs> <laughs> just like huh I'm like i even just got chills just now thinking about it i'm like it's just so weird and twisted and just so creepy and he does such a good job of delivering every single line in the movie yeah, he's that, that, in, that interaction between he and the senator. That's not the same love, same, same connection that he has with Clarice. Yeah, which is why when he's when he's like that with the senator, it's completely unnerving. Yeah, you think you under as much as you can possibly understand a serial killer. You think you understand him after he's had a couple of visits with Clarice, and then all of a sudden you, you really see the depths of his strangeness. Mm-hmm. When he's with the senator, and you're just like, "Oh God!" As as and much as you think a reptile could care for someone, he seems to have at least a little bit of, maybe not care, but consideration for Clarice because he gets upset when you know when Miggs you know does what he does, uh, and he gets upset because it's rude. Um, and I don't I don't know if it's a case of like him actually caring for or considering Clarice, but he just he doesn't like the rudeness of what just happened. But when you get to that, you're right. It's like there's a complete disdain like these creatures in front of me are not even human like i am so i'm on a completely different plane of existence i i have no respect no consideration to give for any of these meat sacks yeah but he's so he's so poised and so intelligent and there's so little violence throughout the whole movie that the one scene the one scene where he unlocks his cuffs and he attacks the two police officers is shocking. I mean, you're just all of a sudden you're just like, Oh, he just 
whip that guy with his own nightstick and blood is just, and he's still just, I mean, almost expressionless as he's doing it, but it's just so ultra violent. So bad. And then bites, biting the face of the other guy, you, you see the horror and they had to have that kind of gore, which you don't typically care for in movies, but it's just, it's like aliens. It's like we talked about, you know, you've, you've got, almost the entire movie of no blood but that one scene when it happens boy is it impactful that's right uh yeah you, you still you covered exactly what i was going to say is like one of my favorite scenes is with the two because as people were talking about when when she was going through and you saw all the people behind the bars and everything else i remember like some of you guys are saying like you, when he got to here like i think it was jeff saying like oh boy how evil is it be that he's behind plexiglass and maybe that's the initial thing, but somehow I felt like she was safer getting through the, the bars and all those guys, those creepy, weird guys who were just shouting stuff at her. And you got to this guy who's talking intelligent, who's calm, who's intelligent. And you're just thinking, he's sort of like her friend in a way, but he's not. And you know he's got some evil stuff behind him. But he, they lull you into this cerebral sort of, it's a psychological sort of intelligence that he has that just is like, puts you almost at a little bit disarming, like he's not an animal. And when he comes out at the end and he does attack those two officers, it goes from being a cerebral villain to like a physical animal. Like he is an animal at that point, utterly evil. And you see what you didn't see almost that you, you almost had a sense of like, Oh, he's helping her out. And I thought he liked her all the time. Like, like he, like, and, and not in a maybe genuine way. I'm not sure if John, you were trying to say that, but like, like if he cared about her really, but, or more as like, here's a chess apprentice that, you know, I'm playing this kind of psychological sparring with and no one else messes with her because she's kind of mine and, and I'm protecting her. And to a certain degree, I felt like he kind of did care about her. But then it was like, when you see the animal part come out in that scene, that is like, it is ultimately that transition that everything else sets up. It's intelligent. He's smart. He's calm. You know, there's parts where she almost gets him to lose his cool, but he the animal never comes out. And right there, the animal is unleashed and literally, like, with almost, like, just bloody teeth. It's just, you now have a full-fledged animal and you realize what he's capable of when he, when he like, transforms. Kind of like in M. Night Shyamalan's with the guy who's, like, you know, playing the cycle. Uh, what's the one? Um, what? A bunch of characters. Yeah, Split. You know, when that monster comes out, it's like now there's this evil thing versus the, you know, the regular characters that were there. And you see that transition happen in that scene very quickly. And you are, you're shocked by it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's underscored by whatever that music is playing on the cassette too, right? Yeah. That It's that classical yeah. piece, which just, yeah, it is. It, it's just another level of unnerving yeah. because that's not the music that you would associate with that type of attack. Um. You know, it's like to go back to Clockwork Orange when, uh, you know, when when Sing Alexander and and his in the rain, yeah, his buddies are doing singing singing in the rain while they're what isn't yeah. that the rape scene? Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Yeah, like it's you're just like I can't I I I don't want to process this. I don't want to connect these two things, yeah. but this movie is forcing me to do that. Another, it's more of a shot, but it's, I guess, the whole scene with the lotion. But it, to me, it's the shot of the fingernail. In the yeah. wall. It's always been in the wall. It's been unsettling to me because then you just, like, there's a certain dread that I remember when I first saw that when they, they kind of they zoom in on it and you see that fingernail. And it makes you think of everything that's happened to that point in there. 
there's nothing like a fingernail, bloody fingernail in a wall. And you just, without having seen it, like you said, they don't show everything, but the amount of horrific violence and desperation of somebody in that pit, you know, literally trying to claw their way out of something to the point that their fingernails are on the wall and blood. Makes so would that, would that be a Hitchcockian move? Would that, be, would that be kind of a Hitchcockian move? I'm going to plant the seeds and let your brain do the rest. Do the rest really, of the work, yeah. And really I think all smart. Out. I think, and that's where I think we go back to when we first start talking about slasher films and what do we like. I think you like the intelligent thing, and I forgot who it was that said um, they're saying like you don't show the bloody. You know, I used to try to tell this to kids when I was doing my film class was they would always try to do a trailer or something that was scary, and they'd want to show. Can we do knives? Can we? And I'm like. It's, it's not, it's a psycho killer coming and stabbing a bunch of people and seeing everything is not always the most scary thing. You know, like in like a Freddy, like a Freddy Krueger or whatever it was or something like that. Like it's always the setup. It's the unknown. It's what you don't see. It's that, cause we've all been there before. I've never been in a situation, God forbid, luckily that some psycho's coming at me with a knife and trying to stab me. But I'll we've be all there been in 35 a, minutes. We've all been in a place where we've heard a creak at night, you know? You've had something subtle that's happened. And, and I think in this case, yeah, planting a seed and letting your imagination be, create the monster uh, or create or fulfill or fill in the gaps that they're not showing of the violence. Yours can be, maybe be worse than what you actually, what actually happened in this case. I'm sure it's not, which gives you another, other utterly hopeless feeling that that person whose nail that belongs to did not get out. Fritz Lang did that in M. You don't see yeah. any of the violence in M. Oh. You know? yeah. So instead of saying it's Hitchcockian, it's what? It's Langian? Maybe. Maybe there you go. I mean, there, there, were some, there were some camera movements in M that immediately my thought was, that's very Hitchcockian. And then I had the thought, like, maybe I need to stop referencing these things as being Hitchcockian. And they're now Langian. Yeah. Fritz Lang's quote was when he was talking about no acts of violence or deaths being on screen, he says he forced each individual member of the audience to create the gruesome details of the murder according to their own imaginations. Yep. And that's the most effective way to do it. That's smart. Yep. Yeah. Smart. Create the monster. Yep. That's why, way. that's, that's why, again, you see how all these people, all these geniuses learn from each other and stuff, too, because they're incorporating a lot of the same things. And going back to, again, Rod Serling, who's one of my favorite, you know, teleplay screenplay writers, was when we show, when I, when I show it in class, and I think, Pat, you probably maybe walked in, John, maybe you walked in at times. When I would show my sixth graders the eye of the beholder with the mask and the bandages around the face, they're talking. When they start to unwrap and they're going around, it was a fishbowl with a camera, you know, and they're mm-hmm. showing the light coming. I have kids literally like covering their eyes, freaking out, asking if they can leave the room. Literally like the anxiety and tension is like unbelievable that when the reveal is there and it's um, what's your name from the Beverly Hillbillies. And they're like, what? I don't what, you know, but they created the language in there. It helps you create. And then your mind, you're creating this, this horrific monster face that's going to be there. And, the, and it's worse than what actually any director almost could do because they're letting you, you know, like, like what they could show you is that you've created the monster in your head, just like he's saying, you've created all that and your imagination is going to be 10 times worse than probably anything they could do with a special effect. I got two tidbits for you. I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's one of the things I really like about silence of the lambs is that the first time I saw silence of the lambs, I already knew 
a few like facts or details about that movie. I was like, oh yeah, it's the Hannibal Lecter, the guy's a cannibal, and it. And then I watched the movie, and I was like, wait a minute. So he's not the well, he is the villain, but he's not the one they're trying to stop. Yeah. All right. He's well, that's that's weird. Uh, that seems like you, you'd think that would be your villain. Like he's the one that should be committing the crime that they're trying to track down. They're trying to stop. And I think that's one of the best things about that movie is you are left until you get to that scene where he, you know, starts eating the guy's face and, and breaks out of his uh, handcuffs and everything else. You are just left to imagine what could be so bad that this guy is in this type of cell and he's they're this careful around him and it's just it's left up to your imagination is what in the world could Hannibal the cannibal lector have done to be considered this dangerous and it, you up until that one scene you don't have a clue you're just you're, you're you building, you're building up your mind yeah okay i got a couple of tidbits for you real quick the uh the guy in the airplane hangar who, when he asked her if she breastfed Catherine, the guy who gets upset, that character's name is Paul Krendler. He actually shows up in the sequel. Uh, he's the guy who gets his brain eaten. That is the, uh, that's Jack Crawford's replacement. So nice. when I learned that, I was like, whoa, that guy gets his brain eaten. Um, and then the book, in the book, Hannibal Lecter went after women. He was a woman killer. Mm. Now in the movie, all he does is kill men, but that's why they chose Starling because she kind of fit the profile of the, of the women he normally would go after. And so they, they were using her clearly as uh, bait. So mm. cool. that's from the book. So what else you got? Ready to move on to composers. <laughs> Composers, but we, but okay. We, we can keep it short. Okay. I don't know who the composer for M was. They used soundtrack effectively in this, and I know it's gotten remade and reused several times. Um, but moving on to Psycho, you've got Bernard Herman, who's huge, right? And he gave us the his when they when the writer asked him you know how big of an orchestra are you going to use for the soundtrack he says it's going to only be the strings he's like only the strings why he's like well it's a black and white movie i'm creating a black and white sound it's strings or nothing and so that's all of the sounds that you get for psycho even the stabbing scenes uh, are all just stringed instruments and then for well and, and to piggyback off of that think of the movement of the the bows on the violins and the violas, right? That back and forth movement of a stabbing motion when you watch those bows go up and down on the instrument. So you hear the instrument, you picture the instrument, you picture that movement, but you you don't sit there and make those connections logically, but it all works together to help develop that motion, that stabbing motion in your head. Yeah. The last scene where where Norman Bates comes out and he's in the dress and the wig didn't have any soundtrack behind it on their original cut. And I can't remember at this point whether it was Bernard Herman that said it to Alfred Hitchcock or the other way around. I think it was Bernard Herman that said it to Hitchcock, but it was like, shouldn't we have the same 
stabbing sound that we have from the shower scene and that made it such a difference if you watch that scene with no soundtrack versus the ree, 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 as he's running in in that dress makes all the difference in the world and alfred hitchcock said bernard herman is responsible for one third of the success of this movie because it would not have been the movie it was without this amazing soundtrack kind of similar to what steven spielberg said about uh, john williams and jaws who was an apprentice of Bernard Herrmann and used his music to influence the music of Jaws, which was the first movie that he and Spielberg did together. And when Spielberg tried to meet Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock would not even bother to shake his hand. You know why? Because he was threatened by him. No, he was, he was embarrassed. Because he, he did the... He had gotten hard up for money, and I don't remember what the... Is it Universal Theaters, maybe? Universal Theaters had come out with the Jaws exhibit, and they It was asked, the Jaws ride. Yeah, the ride, and they asked Alfred Hitchcock to do it, and he was so hard up for money that he did the, he did the introduction, and, like, the guiding of the tour was Alfred Hitchcock, and he was like, I'm too embarrassed to go talk to Spielberg at this point, this mm-hmm. kid. Yep. And then I think, um, you know, we, we already gave a little bit of a plug earlier to the soundtrack show, but in the soundtrack show, I think they mentioned that there's that motif in Psycho, you know, you're talking about John Williams, um, there's that motif in Psycho when he's trying to cover up the murder, and it's kind of, the, I'm going to mess it up if I try it, but it's like, the dun, dun, dun. it's like a quick little like three note thing, um, is the same musical motif when uh, Obi-Wan, Luke, Han, and Chewie first emerge from the hidden compartments in the Falcon. Yep. It's the exact little, exact same little piece of music. Nice. Yeah, they had used that, they had used the piece from Psycho as their temp track. Yeah. And so, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. And then for Silence of the Lambs, we have Mr. Howard Shore, who's done an amazing amount of stuff. He did The Fly, Jeff Goldblum, my guy for... Hannibal Lecter, uh, he did Singwat Female, Jennifer Jason Lee, my replacement. I'm just pointing out the nice. obvious connections, right? Yes. Um, and he also did eh, all of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He's not, a, it's not a small amount of movies that wow. he's done. And not in yeah, Those are okay. Those if you are like okay. that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Dungeons and Dragons. But it's his his music in this one does not jump out at you. In this movie, it's very just kind of a what's the word? Ambient. It's like it's just there and it's just creating it's a creepy feeling, but it's not it, ring, 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 in your face. It's just there and supporting the moment of the film. That's really it. Yeah. Thoughts? I will, I will say the soundtrack when they play American Girl by Tom Petty. Every time I hear that song on the radio, I'm like looking around for Buffalo Bill, you know? <laughs> That's the one she's singing before she gets kidnapped, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was trying to picture or place that in the movie. Yeah. Okay. She's singing it in her car right before he grabs Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You ready for release and reception? And yes. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Go. All right. Well, M made about thirty-five grand in the United States, and but has been determined by the German Cinematography Institute 
to be the single most important German film of all time. So I'd say that's pretty high recognition. Yeah. Um, any more to say about M's reception that I don't know about? Uh, I think it was banned in Germany for. Yeah, the Ger- the Nazis banned it for thirty years. It it, it was released um, thirty one. They banned it, I believe, a year after he left in thirty four, and it did not come back until sixty six. Um, in the meantime, over in the U.S., it was here. Came out in the U.S. in thirty three. And apparently they remade it. Like they remade an American version of M in 1951. And at that time, you could still go see the original M and the original M actually outperformed the remake that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that the head of MGM gathered all his young directors, showed it for them and said, you need to be making movies like this. Yeah. And then he said, if you brought me a movie that had this subject matter, I would reject it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so. I'm going to get my note here. Psycho. 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 Psycho made money. Yes, it did. It's a big hit. Yeah. I've got that the budget, you know, 806,000. Gross thirty-two million, and of course the highest-grossing movie of Alfred Hitchcock's career, and he owned what sixty percent of the profits. Uh-huh. Woo! It's not a bad take. I don't know how he ran out of money. How by did the time he run out of money? Universal theaters popped up. Well played, Hitch. Well played. <laughs> and he had people lined up around the theater. We talked about how they wouldn't let people in, uh-huh. and it was a huge phenomenon. That movie. Okay. Okay. Silence of the Lambs. Moving on. Hit me. Silence of the Lambs. It's one of three movies to win the big five at the Oscars. Best director, best actor, best picture, best actress, best screenplay. Only two other movies have ever done that. Trivia? Yeah, what are the two movies? Anybody get any guesses? I want to say Dances with Wolves might be one of them. Dances with Wolves is not the answer, but that is the reason why Silence of the Lambs pushed its release date back almost six months or something like that. It was supposed to come out in 1990. It was released February of 91, which is not typically when you release a movie. that It's not typically when a movie is going to do well at the Oscars. It's usually the ones that are released at the end of the year that are going to do well at the Oscars. This one is at the beginning, and it still does well. I'm going to guess big. No, not big. This is best actor, best picture, best screenplay, best... Actress. Okay. Gladiator? Nope. Well, we've got about 71 (laughs) more years of Oscars to guess. Um... I would have said Titanic, but I don't think that one actress or actor. Didn't win actor. No. You want the year? You want? Yeah, give me the year. 1934 and 1975. Uh, 75 would be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. 34, The Man Who Knew Too Much? Nope. 
Um, Gone with the Wind? Nope. Good guess, though. Is it one of those when you say it where you were going to be like, oh, man, or is it going to be like, huh? Yeah, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It's called uh, It Happened One Night. Hmm. Okay. I know the okay. title of that movie, but I don't think I've seen it. Is that? Yeah, I've, a, I've heard of it. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. It happened one night and one flew over cuckoo's nest. You're muted, Dennis. That's how we like it. <laughs> Clark Gable Claudia Colbert Frank Capra huh. okay. the writer was Robert Riskin alright and I was saying what happened one night and I was muted that's not fair yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the reason is I was saying we actually saw that film junior year in a film study class Oh, nice. I didn't think it was that great, but I remember it being a big thing. So when you narrowed it down to the year 1934, that's all I could think of. I remember we 1934 were kind of- was your, that was your junior yeah, year. That was, right? that was his junior year. That was, that was junior year of college though. Right. In all fairness. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're all running a mile tomorrow. Let's see who wins. Anyway. <laughs> I just right. have to run faster than John. <laughs> I'm not running. So <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Okay, that would be me, though. All right. So now is the time on sprockets when we rank our movies. (laughs) Oh, boy. Here we go. Okay. Um, I'll keep it short and sweet. I loved M when I saw it for the first time uh, this this year. I thought it was fantastic. I was truly, truly impressed. I had not liked Silence of the Lambs before, so I thought it was going to be third. And I thought Psycho is so iconic. Once I rewatch this thing again, I'm going to think this is the best of them all. Uh, I was completely wrong on my prejudgment of everything, right? So Psycho didn't do much for me. I honestly kind of nodded off a couple of times during Psycho. It just wasn't, it didn't, it didn't give me the thrill that I thought it was going to give me. Um, M is fantastic, and for the things that it set into play, I got to rank it at number one, but Silence of the Lambs is a close second. I was truly surprised at how good it was because I had not remembered it being so good. Silence of the Lambs is fantastic, but M laying the groundwork for everything that it did, the fact that it's 90 years old and it seems so enlightened, and the performance of Peter Lorre as he's describing what it's like to be tormented and how to relieve that. It's just it's too good. I got to go M number one, Sonic Slams number two, and Psycho, a kind of distant three. Okay. What do you guys got? Final judgment. I would like to just like, at first I'm like, after watching all three of these movies and I'd never seen them all uh, up until 36 hours ago. Um, my first reaction was like, dude, I'm just going to reject the question. But then I realized, okay, well, if we have guests on our show, that's not really, you know, that's not cool. And if this is kind of we're guests on your show, I don't want to show up and be that guy. <laughs> so then actually hearing what Dee had to say, that's exactly kind of the ranking that I would feel in it. Like uh, M was just awesome. And I feel like I could rewatch that. In fact, I'm going to rewatch it just because I'm, I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of it, but I'm going to rewatch that thing. 
Um, and I, I could see rewatching that every year, you know, I mean, that's like Dennis said, I mean, that's like a 12 angry men esque kind of mind play, you know, um, the other two movies were fantastic. I mean, it was, um, uh, they're fantastic. I mean, I just watch and I don't know. I don't know if I'll rewatch them. I mean, I'd probably, I, I might go the a little bit uh, opposite of what D was saying. I might rewatch Psycho before I rewatch Silence of the Lambs. But then as I say that out loud, it's like, no, nah, I can see Silence of the Lambs again. I, I really, I liked them all, but, but M was just so much to think about and so relevant. I would, uh, I would, I would give that one the nod. I guess criteria here of uh, what, what's the, is it judging by what we would rewatch or is it just by literally evaluating what you think is the better superior film? It's literally whatever you want it to be. Okay. So I'm going to go by more of what I would rewatch again. Um, Cause there's sometimes there's movies I see that are like, this was an awesome movie, but honestly, I don't see my, I've gotten what I want out of that movie or what I kind of need or what I, what they wanted me to get out of it. made me think it may, you know, but so I'm going to go the almost opposite. I'm going to go silence of the lambs one psycho two M three because of that factor. If I were to judge which movie I'm going to see again, it's on TV. I'm going to stop and watch probably silence of the lambs. Then it's going to be psycho. And then it would be M M is good. But like, if I were to rank, which one is, especially for the time period and for what they had to work with, you know, and, 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 and a bold statement and a bold topic at that time and daring topic, like that's kind of ballsy to really like cover a child killer at that time. I mean, I think that's, and then like, like you said, it brings up all the thought processes of what do we do? It like, it leaves these, leaves you really kind of pondering and that's always the mark of a good film. So while I might rank M under the scale of which is the better film, which one I would rewatch more or which one I would be wanting to see again, I would go silence psycho. M. I'm struggling with this a lot because the, the difference between all three of these would be like minuscule points, yeah. right? Like it's the, the, they each bring like they, they each bring a certain thing to it. Right. So I feel like without M they're probably psycho wouldn't have done its thing. And without psycho silence wouldn't have done its thing. Right. But in my head, that doesn't warrant M enough credence to beat out psycho and silence. I think in terms of if I'm, if I'm going to put on a movie and I want to be entertained by a movie of this genre, I think I would probably go with uh, Dennis's list and do silence. Very close second would be psycho. And then very close to that would be M. It just depends on what do I want to get out of my movie viewing experience when I'm putting on this movie. Yeah. I think some, sometimes on our show, we kind of, we try to ask the question and, and frame it like, all right, a two parter. If this were coming out today and we're in theaters, like what would draw me to go see it in the theaters? And part two to that question is, is this a movie that I would own a physical copy of? You know, would I or or would I purchase a digital copy of it? Would I own it on my shelf of DVDs and Blu-rays? Um, and if so, why? Like what's what's the reason for doing that? Because, you know, I'm, there's only certain movies I'm probably going to actually go out and purchase. Um, 
my list is pretty much exactly the same. It actually is exactly the same as everybody else's for some of those same reasons. Um, M, I really enjoyed M. It's the first time I had seen it from start to finish. Um, a, a heady topic. Um, just it was it was great to see and watch a movie that was that long ago and just some of the strategies, some of the different techniques and the things that it employed. I'm watching that movie. I'm going, that's where that's from. I've seen that in other movies before, but this one is so early on. I'm like, that must be where it started or, or very close to where it started. So that was fun to see that in M. Um, to Jeff's point, that's not enough. Like, I don't know. I don't know that at least in the near future, I will go back and rewatch M. It's one of those. It's like, okay, I've seen it. I, I've checked that off my list of movies I need to see before I die. Um, do I need to see it again? Nope. I've got it. I understand its significance. I enjoyed it. I really liked it. Um, moving on to other things. Psycho. Love Psycho. I I would probably own a copy of Psycho. I don't own a copy, but I would. Um, if not for just its cultural significance, knowing that, um, you know, my family growing up, Alfred Hitchcock was always kind of a big thing in our family. We watched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock stuff. Um, Psycho, would I be as ready to rewatch Psycho as I would um, Silence of the Lambs? Or would I be, I don't even want to say as entertained. Well, no, I do. As entertained? Um, no, I am more entertained, but just barely, more entertained by Silence of the Lambs. There's just so much in Silence of the Lambs that just kind of hits it for me. Just that the character of Hannibal Lecter, the 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 struggle, the story, all the conflict in it, the interplay between Clarice and and Hannibal. Um, it just it that movie fires on all cylinders for me. So I think that's going to be my order too. It's going to be Silence of the Lambs, Psycho, and then M. But as everybody else has said, that's not to say that. That doesn't diminish what M is and what M did. It's just they're all three really good. Yeah, I'm going to just copy what you guys said. I think for my list, it goes M at number three, Psycho at number two, and then the character of Hannibal Lecter as the crazy psychotic psychologist who's helping you catch the super scary Buffalo Bill that puts it over the top. Silence of the Lambs for me is number one. We want to hear what you guys out there in Facebook land have to say about this. Where do you rank these? One, two, three. Facebook land? Facebook land. <laughs> Facebook land and Twitter land. You know? I think Alfred Hitchcock does the announcements for our ride on Facebook land. <laughs> good guys, e good evening. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a blast and, a, and just a lot of fun to get in depth with these crazy deep serial killer movies. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having us. We always have a good time with you guys. Um, and uh, anytime, I, most of us, except for Pat, anytime we get a chance to talk about something creepy or scary, we're, we're up for it. And, and Pat's a good sport. You know, he'll jump in too. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, well... I don't know how creepy and scary these were. I think it was just really like intense, you know? So I don't know what that statement was supposed to mean. You can edit that out, but Hey, <laughs> it was great being on the show though. And seriously talking about three movies that I'd never seen before. So it was great to, you know, get the first time reactions and, and, and discuss them. So 
Yeah, you know, the bad rating for these should be a one blankie, two blankie, three blankie um, type of rating for you. Yeah, man. Yeah, Silence I, I, of Lambs, you needed three comfort blankies there. And <laughs> uh, Not once I started rooting for Hannibal Lecter. Like, once I realized, like, dude, this guy's smarter than any of these fools out there. And I was rooting for Jodie Foster, too. So then it kind of became, like, you know he's getting out. Like Jodie was running, too, so... <laughs> Well, that probably didn't hurt. But that, yeah, Pat, you kind of hit on my sister's strategy when she's watching a movie and it starts to get too scary. She decides she's going to start rooting for the villain. Right. Then it becomes less scary. So that's kind of her strategy for any horror movie. If she's getting freaked out or too scared, she's like, all right, I'm just going to start, you know, rooting for the guy or the creature that's killing everybody. And then it's less scary. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. What were they, psychos? We all go a little mad sometimes. Quit pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? You really look deep in thought. So I'll ask you the questions and then we'll see, all right? So I'll ask you the questions and we'll see. All right. God, he's so creepy. All right. I just like the wall on that music. That was awesome. Can we just do that all over again? We could. We could just do that. We can just sit here and listen to that the whole time. All right. So three questions uh, for Silence of the Lambs. First question. What is your favorite movie that features a serial killer? I love the movie Seven. The 1995 movie with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. The first time I saw that, when they came up and they said, when that box is delivered at the very end, what's in the box? What's in the box? I My eyeballs almost fell out of my head. That just <laughs> blew me away. And I really felt like that killer was so dangerous to everyone. I think, yeah, that one, that's it for me. Seven. All right. I, I can quickly follow that one up and say ditto. I don't mean ghost. I mean seven. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. a serial killer in ghost, right? I, There's, yeah, that's true. The, that's the winner. I mean, that's, the, I don't think there's any question. That's the best. That's the best one. There's a couple of other runner ups in my opinion, but I'll let you guys go first and see if you hit the ones that I'm thinking of. I, I, I think for me, I, as much as I think seven is a fantastic film, it's not one that I'm going to, put on a lot. Um, so I would have to go with um, probably Silence of the Lambs being my favorite of the serial killer genre. But um, yeah, Seven is is quite an excellent film. You know, I, I, I think the first time that I saw it, I had rented it and I, and I rented American Psycho and watched them back to back. So that was a very, that was a very interesting movie in my life. But yeah, I'll go with silence. I'm going to actually, I'm going to jump in real quick and I'm going to say that I thought about that for half a second and I'm going to throw in the movie Fallen because I seven absolutely love seven. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be different and and choose a a different option here, I'm going to go Fallen. Because that one, the, I remember the first time I saw that one, and it just was uh, Denzel Washington, uh, J- 
John Goodman. And it's the if you guys haven't seen it, it's the one where it's the the demon possesses the guy and, and he's, you know, arrested and, and put in jail and actually put to death for crimes that he as a person did not commit, but the demon possessing him committed. And then this demon can pass from person to person just by touching uh, someone nearby. That's and the one where they sing, right? It's the one where he's always either singing or whistling. Time is yeah. on my side. Yeah. And yes, whoever's it singing it mm-hmm. has the has the devil inside of him. Yep. And that's how you know how where which way the devil's going. It's whoever sings it next. Because mm-hmm. there's that it's, there's a scene like in the police station where all of a sudden you're just watching person from person to person start singing that line. Yeah. Well, there oh, there's there's one yeah, scene there's one scene where Denzel is trying to chase the guy and they're on the street. And it just it keeps tapping like the shoulder of the person in front of them. And it switches from like old lady to little kid to old man to, yeah. And it's just, I'm like, oh man, this movie is great. So I'm actually going to go. So my number one movie would be uh, seven, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw Fallen in as my runner up. Now that description of Fallen sounds an awful lot like the movie Shocker, that crappy Wes Craven movie from the late eighties, but mm-hmm. Anyway, a little bit. keep going. Sorry. <laughs> Pat, what would be yours? I know you're you're knee deep in the serial killer genre most times. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been fun because uh, uh, I've been for this for this episode, I've checked out three movies that I'd never seen before. Um, so it was. Uh, yeah, I know. And it's funny because these are like this is really cool because these are like classics. And uh, I've I, it's a long past time that I should have seen them, but it's almost it's more fun to like wait and like be on the show to say first time, you know, first time viewer. So that that's been really fun. And uh, try not to suffer from uh, recency bias where it's just like, oh, Psycho's my favorite. And then the next day, oh, Silence of the Lambs is favorite. Oh, so I'm going to go a little bit outside the question, and uh, I'm going to go to my uh, uh, Trekkie roots, and I'm going to say uh, the original series, there's an episode called Wolf in the Fold, and uh, it's I think it still holds up, and it's actually, they do kind of the same thing um, that, John, what you were describing in that last film, because I'll fully admit that I haven't seen a ton of the serial killer movies, and one of the main characters gets possessed um, but in this case, it's by this alien entity that was the original Jack the Ripper. So mm-hmm. like, apparently this alien came to earth and that was Jack the Ripper. And that's why it was never solved because the alien just kind of disappeared. And, you know, the enterprise goes to this planet. And the next thing you know, the alien jumps in and like takes possession of one of the crew members and just starts killing people. And the whole episode is pretty much that it's like the lights go out, the lights come on and someone's dead. And then, you know, Scotty, for those of you that don't watch Star Trek of beam me up, Scotty fame, Scotty's holding the knife and he's just like, I didn't do it. But the alien that was Jack the Ripper hundreds of years ago on earth was taking possession of him. And, uh, I mean, the show was done in the sixties, but I was watching it as a kid and it still creeps me out. It really creeps you out because it's all the same stuff that you're talking about. Like, and I thought it was cool kind of the way they tied that into like, you know, Jack the Ripper and they never solved it because it was an alien. And so I know it's not a movie, but, um, you know, these three movies are probably the first like serial killer movies that I've seen. Uh, and you know, so I'm I'm just gonna have to go with the the Star Trek Wolf in the Fold because uh, it it has a lot of the same beats of John the the film that you were just describing, and uh, it's really cool because it's 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 the characters that you know but just like within a horror movie format and so uh, so um, 
yeah, it's it's a it's a great episode. Freaks the heck out of you, especially you know a ten year old Pat that like saw it back in the day and was just like, oh my gosh, what am I watching? So that's that's what I'm gonna go with. And it was it was super awkward when the guy possessed Scotty and he's just like stabbing be stabbing people, going, "I'm giving it all she's got, Captain." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, and it was it was back. You know, it was. 1960 Star Trek. So the special effects, they just kind of would use, you know, weird voices and weird lights flashing and all that. But it's almost like the Jaws thing, right? You never see the shark. You never got to see some. It was just, it freaked you out because suddenly, you know, one of the characters was possessed and just was, you know, going psycho and trying to kill people. So, yeah. Awesome. I want to see it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, and it's been a while, so I got to see if it holds up, but it's called Wolf in the Fold. Uh, I looked it up real fast. It's episode, uh, season two, episode 14 of the original series. Writing that down. It's original Star Trek, man. It holds up. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Unless, uh, you know, and then maybe, maybe I'm just totally wrong. Then does Dust Till Dawn count? No, that's a vampire movie, so that doesn't count. That's a different genre. Okay. That's more vampire-y. Yeah, but, but thank you for, and I forget who did, but thank you for throwing out American Psycho because I did forget that one too. Jeff, have you answered already? Yeah, I, I went with uh, with you and Sons of the Lambs. Sons of the Lambs, okay. Sons of the Lambs, my number two, by the way. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, so I'm gonna not say any of the three movies that we've covered today because those are also obvious winners, no question about it. And I would say that. American Psycho and Natural Born Killers probably tie in my book. So I'm going to go, if I'm not picking any of the ones that we've already talked about and the ones that you guys mentioned, I'm I'm picking those two. And then for underrated serial killer movie, California with Brad Pitt. Fantastic show. Oh, yeah. I have no more comment other than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Dennis, would you, I, I, Dennis, I know you were, you were jumping in here. Um, did you uh, have a favorite serial killer movie? I mean, you guys have mentioned a lot of them. California was one that I also thought of that was going to kind of be a sleeper one that, like, people might not mention, but you guys blew that. Um, so I, I don't – I for some reason, when I started thinking of this, and I and – I, like, I just heard the question as I was coming out. I have not studied for this episode. So, anyway, um, the uh, – I, I think identity falls in that category for me. Is, a, is it a serial killer movie? I kind of guess it is. Do you guys remember Identity with John, John Cusack? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the one where they're in the hotel, and they're in the mind of the serial killer. No, yes, vaguely. I've seen no, it's, I it's been a while since I've, 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 I've seen, seen, I've seen, seen that one. one. Yeah, I, I've seen that one. So yeah, so you don't know that there. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, but anyway, there's a bunch of these characters all in there. People are getting killed off, and then they find out that it's yeah. So anyway, so. Um, that would be one that I really I enjoy. I don't know if it's your traditional series, but otherwise, American Psycho. Um, yeah, those are all good up there. I mean, trying to think of a, a couple other that'll probably come to mind. Um, again, it's not a movie, but I think The True Detectives, um, first season, is what I would throw on there as a kind of offshoot. It's not, I guess it's not a movie, it's a series, but I think of that as a well done one. Cool. So. I always thought uh, when I was when I was a little bit younger and I saw the cell for the first time, I always thought that was kind of a cool one. Just the just some of the special effects and other stuff. All right, question number two: um, What side dish and beverage would you pair with a census taker's liver? 
Was it a rough day, John? <laughs> how are you doing, John? Are you okay? I, I'm blinking twice, which is more than Anthony Hopkins blinked in this entire movie. Well, I, I grew up in Arkansas, so I'm going to have to go with Boone's Farm and Pork and Beans. <laughs> well done. Well done. Well, I don't think <laughs> Yeah, I'm, so I grew up in Oklahoma, man. I'm going with macaroni, cheese, and bacon, so. There you go. I was going to go onion rings and beer. <laughs> All right, Pat. Rutgers cream, Rutgers cream soda, and I was going to do some fries. Maybe like some roasted potatoes. It's a little bit more of a special occasion. Not often huh. you have a census taker come to your home. So, so, so I'm just going to say, and I, I, I don't want to speak for Dennis either. I just want to go on def- default of saying, if I'm going to eat a census taker, I've actually been uh, uh, vegetarian for about the last six or seven years. So I would need a plant-based human being. Uh, if there's any of those floating around out there. Um, and I'm just going to say that I actually Googled that not on the work computer, John, don't worry. Uh, but like, I don't know if it was a joke or not, but I found this thing about like, yeah, if you're a cannibal, but still want to be a vegan, there are plant-based <laughs> human alternatives. And so I kind of fell down that rabbit hole before my wife was like, what are you looking at? I'm like, nothing, nothing at all, you know, and, and shut that whole thing down. So I would say for a side, uh, you know, uh, I, I would just, I, I don't know, aside with, with the census taker, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe just some, uh, maybe just some bread and olive oil and red wine. Probably that's kind of the way I go. Oh. Sop it up, get all, everything off your plate. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Sop up all the, <laughs> sop up all the fluids, you know, <laughs> I, I, thank you. <laughs> I'm still just reacting to the fact that there's vegan cannibals. Did you did you look that up? I unfortunately I just googled it. <laughs> I hope you're not on the work computer. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm on the work computer, but I'm the tech director, so it's okay. <laughs> I, I think just the mere fact that we're all on the same Zoom call means that now our computer is being targeted by the CIA. <laughs> Probably, as well. that's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, well, so, we can. John's the tech director. We just call it testing the filter. Yes, we're testing you know? the filter. Yeah, yeah, that was fun that one time. Um, <laughs> Oh, 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 that was that's a story and a half right there. I'm still stuck on this though. Apparently, it's called instead of like tofu, it's called hufu. <laughs> it's it's quote unquote the healthy human flesh alternative. I can't do it. Wow. I I don't right, somebody, even. Uh, somebody needs to order some of this and it's like chicken. <clears throat> we all we we all need to to give this a try. No. Hufu was marketed towards, quote, cannibals who want to quit. All right. Pat and I are the uh, plant-based guys. We'll have to do the person provide a report. I'm just just trying to cut down, man. I'm trying to get down to, like, one human a week. You know what I'm saying? If I could just cut down. (laughs) All right. Well, if I can find some Hufu for you, I know what to order you guys for Christmas. Oh, man. What the hoofoo? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, with a so, nice marinara sauce. Somebody, so, some people get mail order steaks. You know, you get hoofoo. Hoofoo. Um. All right. So mine. Uh, <laughs> um. So mine. I and I actually, I, I was going to do this just for the podcast. I went to the store and I was actually going to buy a bottle of Chianti. And because I'm cheap, and I saw how much the cheapest bottle was, I was like, that's not that's not worth the joke that no one's going to see. <laughs> 
on an audio podcast. Um, so I didn't do that. But uh, mine, I think, would be my, mine would be fried okra and a glass of Lagavulin scotch. Fried okra, I like it. That's With it. or without ranch? Uh, without ranch. I do my fried okra straight up. Oh, man. I got to have some ranch. All right. My, my fried okra and my scotch straight up. I'm going to need a gigantic Dr. Pepper with, to go with this as well. So That's that's what I asked my son. I was like, are you going to go with like a Dr. Pepper and I don't know. Uh, he probably do fried okra too. I was like, are you, he would do Dr. Pepper with anything. But <laughs> I certainly I, didn't encourage him to touch your bourbon last week. Well, he tried to, but that was that, that did not come from me. That was yeah. not my advice. No, I, I didn't. I didn't think it was. I nope. didn't have any headphones <laughs> on, so I couldn't hear what you were saying. My advice to you. My, the best. my advice to you is to start drinking heavily. <laughs> um, all right, did we get everybody's answer for that one? I think we did. Well, we, we ended. We almost ended on Hufu, so we're gonna we're gonna move on to the next question. Um, question number three: If you could only have one item, if you were stuck in solitary confinement, like Doctor Lecter, and you could only have one item with you, what would you want? And I'm gonna I'm gonna put in the caveat here because my mm-hmm. daughter my daughter was like, well, wait a minute. If I can only have one item, can I only have a pen but no paper? And I was like, no, no, okay. If you wanted to do like a, a pen and paper set, that could be your one item. It worries me how smart she is. It yes. Well, what worries me also is that when when she asked what do you, what movie are you doing tonight, and I said Silence of the Lambs, and she goes, Ah, the Chianti one. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, I think on the playgrounds. I think it's pretty cool that I think it's pretty cool that she said a pen. I'm just what? like, okay, has she seen the movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know that one. That one time she looked at her brother and said, "You want to see a magic trick?" I got, I got a little worried. Oh man! Well, thankfully, I I have, I think, turned her off from ever watching this movie because she did come over one time. She's like, "So, what movie are you guys doing next week?" And I said, "Well, it's called Silence of the Lambs." And she's like, "What's that one about?" And I said, "Well, it's a serial killer and he eats people." And she's like, "Well, that kind of sounds creepy." I said, "Yeah, but the creepiest part is one of the best lines in the whole movie." And I did the whole line. I was like. You know, once a census man came to test me and I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> and as soon as I did that sound, like her eyes got real wide and she's like, nope, I'm never watching that movie. Never watching that movie. <laughs> All right. So what item would you have? I Mine's easy. I, mine would be a pen and paper. There's there's a lot you can do with pen and paper. You can write, you can draw, you can make paper airplanes. I think I would need a phone so I could keep up with the surely you can't be serious <laughs> and the 30 something. <laughs> Thank right. you. You can draw on a phone too. It's true. I mean, I mean, phone would be most practical, I think. Yeah. But as long as I, I guess mean, they're not. That might be my answer. If we're going practical, I'm going to go ahead and go with um, a saw and <laughs> blowtorch. Yeah. <laughs> File <laughs> keys to the cell. I pick keys to the cell. That's my answer. <laughs> Laser. You know, lasers. Laser. Um, you know the thing that immediately popped in my so like phone, yes, of course. But the thing, the first thing that popped in my brain was a Nintendo Game Boy with Tetris. <laughs> That's oddly specific. I can play Tetris and get lost for hours. That's oddly awesome. correct, though. You will have you will have hours in which to get lost if you're in solitary. So, 
I'd be the world's greatest Tetris player by the time I got out. <sighs> Dennis, what about yourself? I mean, as much as I somewhat despise computer stuff after a while of doing it a lot, um, I would I would say I just could jump to the computer because it gives me my phone. I can contact people. I can still do the pen and paper. I can type on there. Um, I can keep up with what's going on the outside. So I, I would probably go with that. It would be the most, if I had to go with something more practical, that would be it. Well, see, I, w- I would do that too. I went with pen and paper because I figured – I, I figured if they if I'm a serial killer, I figured they're limiting my access to the outside world. So yeah, I kind of figured they might not let me have a computer. Well, I'm assuming they well, would you let didn't me. say that. You gave us carte blanche. You didn't say that. Yeah, I, that's, that's fine. Cause, that's cause fine. Jeff's got Jeff's got a phone. Mm-hmm. I can get a laptop then. That's fine. That's fine. You sound like you sound like teenage kids. Well, he gets a phone. <laughs> Why don't I get a computer if he gets a phone? <laughs> I still have the bum ride. <laughs> she got a car. I got a computer. All right. Pat, what do you got? Oh, good pull, man. It's not a, not a heavy bag. A heavy bag and some punching gloves. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That's well, here. Hey, you're in solitary. I can't be in there with you. <laughs> yeah. If, if I've got, if I've got, uh, if I've got uh, solitary, I'd say, you know what? I just, I just want a treadmill. Just so I could keep, you know, uh, just so I could run. run. Yeah, I think that'd be, you know, I think that would be it. Ladies and gentlemen, listening to the audio podcast, uh, Jeff's facial expression was the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, uh, uh, Jeff, I think you, you might be with me. If we're in solitary, I think the next time somebody comes to visit, it's like, welcome, Captain Solo. <laughs> There's not going to be any treadmill running, I think, no, if I'm stuck in solitary. No running. <laughs> Have you brought me the Wookiee? Oh, man. Speaking of Jabba, Pat, I do have a Clone Wars question for you later. Okay. All right. I need a chain and a Twi'lek dancer. All right. <laughs> and some frogs. A big it's, bucket of frogs. And a bucket of frogs. <laughs> which, which, oddly enough, is my answer to question two as well. <laughs> Wrong. I, well. All right. Well, I think that's um, going to do it. Uh, is that going to do it for three questions, or what do you got, Pat? Well, I was just going to say, D, what was I, – I, I missed it. What was your answer? I think D had the keys. Yeah, keys to the cell. Yeah. Keys to the cell. Okay, yeah. that's right. Boring. Pop right. out. Pop out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh. truthfully, honestly, to, to, to be within the, you know, uh, idea, I would I'd be the same. I'd be pencil. I mean, I, I wouldn't be pen. I'd be pencil and paper for sure. Okay. Yeah. Got it. All right. That's going to do it for three questions. That's also going to do it for this episode for us here at the 30-something movie podcast. So go check us out at 30podcast.com, at 30podcast on the social medias. Don't forget to check out the rest of our uh, sponsor shows in the Scene Stealers Retro Podcast Network, heading over to scenestealersglobal.com. Our next episode is coming up here in October. Uh, A Patreon episode is going to be Evil Dead from 1981. I am very, very happy that my uh, 4K my non-4K TV, but my 4K version of Evil Dead came in the mail the other day. So I'm going to be watching uh, uh, Tree Mayhem in high def. Um, 
And then we've got episode number 376 coming up next will be Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Sleeping with the Enemy is after that. The People Under the Stairs finish off our month of October. And then in November, our Patreon is going to be Favorite TV Shows of 91. Then Defending Your Life, What About Bob, The Doors, and The Fisher King. So that's what we got coming up for the next couple of months here on the 30-something Movie Podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Dee and Jason, for being here with us. And it's always so much fun to have you guys with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. We really yeah. love doing this stuff with you. Always fun, guys. Um, yep. Always great to see you. So much fun. Thanks for having us. Yep. Pat, Dennis, Jeff, thank you guys yep. so much, too. Um, hey, so, thanks, everybody, man. everybody, be excellent to each other. Go watch some good movies, and we'll see you back here next time.